Good morning, everybody. I hope you're doing well as we collectively stare across the post-apocalyptic landscape of the Trayvon Martin debacle acquittal. Uh, as you probably are aware, George Zimmerman is now what is euphemistically termed a free man, which means he's back to having to pay legal bills, taxes, and look over his shoulder for vigilante justice. Well, I guess it's one thing to be out of the slaughterhouse. It's quite another thing to actually be back in the jungle. So um, thanks you, of course, to everyone who shared and posted and commented on, well, not everyone maybe, but thanks to everyone who helped share and post and provide constructive feedback on my video, one of the most, I guess, interesting video blow-ups uh, in FDR history uh, released two or so days ago and is now the 11th most viewed video. Um, it almost, almost is like there's some value in doing current events. I don't know. Who, who the heck can read the tea leaves of the internet audience? It's really, really hard to say. But uh, thank you, everyone, so much for your kind feedback and responses. And I did get – I got some unbelievably fantastic questions and comments and criticisms from that video. And uh, I was up till 3.30 in the morning last night responding uh, to those uh, comments and questions and issues. And um, I guess uh, – should I? Yeah, I know we got a lot of callers. Let me just um, – I'll just read the first paragraph or two. Um, I never like to write and publish right away. Obviously, I like to get lots of people's feedback and uh, want to make sure that the arguments are, you know, unlike my verbal rambles, as concise and helpful as possible. So uh, I published sort of later today, but I think it'll be hopefully useful. And again, one of these things that hopefully helps calm people down. And uh, if it introduces, you know, to me, this is... I guess as of this morning, 125,000 people who got the anti-spanking message. Um, yeah. Conversion rate of 10%. That's not bad. That means that um, you know, 10,000 people or so will, may stop hitting their children. Um, not a bad day's work. In fact, I really can't think of much of a better day's work. But uh, okay, so this is uh, what I was. Uh, this is what I. I'll just write the. F I'll read the first bit, and then we'll. We'll head on. Um, so two days ago, I published a video detailing largely unknown facts about the trial of George Zimmerman for the death of Trayvon Martin. Tonight, Sunday, uh, Saturday, fourteenth January. Twenty. Sorry, tonight, Saturday, thirteenth January, twenty thirteen, as of ten p.m. EST, the jury has agreed with my assessment and found him not guilty on all counts. Now, of course, the jury hasn't agreed with my assessment. They just happened to coincide. Before the verdict was returned, I received a large number of powerful, passionate, interesting, and critical questions about my video I'm going to attempt to answer. And uh, there were a few thoughts I had that I wanted to add. The child victim. So, as you all know, the media constantly refers to Trayvon Martin, who was 17, as a child. And this is low-life propaganda, and it's most obvious. Can you imagine a 17-year-old actor being referred to as a child actor? Ooh, given that most teenagers are allowed to drive at the age of 16, have you ever seen the media condemn the modern horror of allowing children to get behind the wheels of cars? Do you know you can join the U.S. military at the age of 17 with signed parental consent? Have you seen many articles raging against the U.S. Army recruiting children as soldiers? When a 17-year-old American soldier is killed overseas, do you see articles reporting the death of a child? Of course not, the world the word is only used to inflame prejudice and provoke base-of-the-brain parental protection instincts. 
the unarmed victim. With dull, monotonous metronome repetition, the mainstream media refers to Trayvon Martin as unarmed. Only hyper-liberal victim mongers completely unaware of the reality of gun ownership could imagine that the word unarmed invalidates shooting an attacker in self-defense, or that the word unarmed somehow translates into harmless or defenseless. One of the main purposes of gun ownership is to protect yourself from people who are going to attack you without a gun. I mean, come on, just think about it for a moment. How many people buy a handgun to protect themselves from snipers? Well, no one, because if someone is going to shoot you from a distance without warning, your handgun isn't going to do much to protect you now, is it? If Trayvon Martin was in possession of the handgun he was reportedly trying to acquire, and if he had decided to kill George Zimmerman, he would have shot him from the bushes without warning, and Zimmerman's gun would have done nothing to help or save him. So, yeah, Martin was in fact unarmed. So was Mike Tyson when he bit someone's ear off. So were Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, and Richard Speck, all serial killers who didn't use guns. So were the little old lady poisoners in the movie Arsenic and Old Lace. So what? Self-defense does not require that your attacker be armed with a gun, a hand grenade, a rocket launcher, a bag of killer bees, or have the ability to call in an airstrike. It only requires that you believe with reasonable justification that you are in imminent danger of severe bodily harm or death. The capacity of human beings to cause bodily harm to each other did not magically appear with the first handgun. As propaganda goes, the worst part about it is it's also pathetically transparent. Personally, I prefer my neuro-linguistic programming just a little bit more sophisticated. This stuff is all sort of on the level of monkey want a banana? Anyway, so that's the intro I go on to dissect. It's about a 5,000-word essay I wrote last night. I go on to dissect a lot of great questions. Um, some really moved me, and I really do want to thank people for sending them in. And this is, of course, a very important and powerful issue. Uh, if we're fighting amongst ourselves rather than opposing the powers that be, then, um, you know, really the powers that be win out in, in pretty desperate and disastrous ways. So, anyway, that's it for my introduction. Uh, thank you, everybody, once again for all of your support, which makes this kind of communication possible. And now, let us open the gates to the listeners. Release them from the pound, pound, pound. Hello, hello. Hi, Stefan. Thanks so much for taking my call. Uh, you are very, very welcome. How are you doing? <laughs> good, good. How are you doing? <laughs> um, okay, so uh, Michael told me to keep it to specific philosophical questions, so I'll give you. I'll try to be brief on my background. Uh, my parents divorced when I was three, and um, then my dad immigrated to Canada. And then I came to Canada when I was thirteen, and I had um, lived with him until I was about like seventeen-ish or eighteen, and then I moved out. So during that time, he had been oh, like this was the first time when I really got to know my dad. I didn't remember anything about him, so he was really like abusive in every way, like uh, verbal abusive, sexual abusive, and then. Fast forward several years. I'm so sorry I, to hear that. I never want to. I never want to gloss okay. over that stuff or, or move yeah. past it too quickly. I'm incredibly sorry, but, but please continue. Thanks. So fast forward several years, I keep having these dreams that, like, the nightmares, they're recurring. Like, for the, the past, I think, year, they've been really frequent, and it's always like the same dream, just in a different context, where I keep running away from him and he's like no matter how fast I run or hide like he's always there he's like 
catching on to me and sometimes like I yell in my dreams to leave me alone. Sometimes I like, try to punch him, but like in the dreams, the punches are really weak, so I can't get him. And so it's always the same. It's not going away. And I'm wondering what, what that is and how I can deal with that. And how often do you have these kinds of dreams? Um, hmm. Lately, they actually stopped somewhat, but they... The, the most frequent I've had them probably like once or twice a week. Right. And are they usually in the in similar circumstances or are they in, in different kinds of circumstances? Like are you usually in the same location? Is it a house or uh, does it vary in locations? Yeah, the location varies. Like sometimes it's outside, sometimes it's in a house. I don't know, different places, but it's always like the same type of action that repeats. Sure. And in the dream, does your father's age Vary or uh, appearance vary? Uh, no. <laughs> Just like um, the same as I remember him. Right. And uh, in the dream, are there ever any other people, or is it, are you sort of locked in this isolation chamber, this desert, with your abusive father? Hmm. Uh, yeah, sometimes there's other people present, but they're like, they're just like outside. Like, let's say sometimes I'm running away in the public. So there's, I can tell like there's people, but they're not engaging with me or him. They're not engaging, so they they don't notice that you're running, or they do they notice that you're frightened and running, or do they just ignore the entire situation? Um, yeah, more like ignoring. Right, right. And um, you don't have to get into any details, but can you just mm -hmm. give me a sense in general of how safe and secure your current um, life and world and relationships and situation is? Um, yeah, pretty safe and secure. <laughs> it's, sorry? It's pretty safe and secure, and I, I, don't, um, I, I don't have a relationship with him right now. Actually, he tried to connect with me over, like, uh, virtually, basically, and he's just written a letter to me asking me how I am and that he's expecting a reply to me, <laughs> not addressing everything that happened. Right, right. Now, um, what about, see, okay, this is, I think this is an important, I mean, this is a very important issue. I, I certainly appreciate you, you bringing it up, and I'm just going to sort of share some thoughts about why I think it's important. Um, so if we've had an abusive history with someone, in this case your father, we tend to focus on, and rightly so, we tend to focus on that abuser, right? Mm -hmm. But that abuser never acts in isolation, right? And what I mean by that is not that, uh, you know, there were more than... You one dad, he had a doppelganger or something like that. But what I mean is that they, an abuser, particularly a child abuser, cannot act, cannot achieve his goals, cannot affect his abuse without at least some level of enablement or support within the community. Can I, can I, can I give you sort of an example of what I mean? It's a, it's a tricky yeah, concept, please. but I think it's really important. So I grew up, uh, as you may or may not know, um, yeah. with a very loudly abusive mother. And what I mean by that is, you know, screaming, hitting, throwing, punching, that kind of stuff. And 
I grew up in a series of apartment buildings where I was loud. Right. And so hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people heard all of this abuse occurring. Now, I'm not even talking about friends uh, or friends' parents or extended family or teachers who could clearly see the effects of abuse and so on, right? I'm just talking about people who could hear it through the walls, right? Now, one of the most difficult but instructive things that I learned about society through this experience was the degree to which my mom understood society a whole lot better than I did. Because my mom felt perfectly comfortable screaming and hitting and throwing and punching and all that kind of stuff, knowing that throughout the course of my childhood, probably over a thousand people at least had direct, immediate, visceral, audible knowledge, direct knowledge of the abuse that was occurring, right? And she felt perfectly safe in continuing that abuse despite the fact that maybe a thousand people heard it and all it would take is one person to pick up the phone, call the authorities, and leave an anonymous tip. Right? They wouldn't have to put themselves out at all. wouldn't be difficult for them. wouldn't be hard for them. They didn't have to confront my mom. They didn't have to take down bears with chainsaws. They didn't have to run in tin suits through a lightning storm to pick up the phone dial the authorities and report what they heard and hang up. And this is back in the days when there was no NSA, so nobody could have even been traced, right? This is back in the days where if you were some creep with a asthma problem, you can call up women and heavy breathing to their ears and freak them the heck out and nobody would ever find you, right? So the reason that I'm saying all of this is that my relationship with my mom I can deal with, right, that was something that occurred, and I can choose to see or not see my mom. In my case, I've chosen to not see my mom. And I can, that, that then is in the past, right? But the society that I live in, which has not changed much in the 30 years or so since this all occurred to me, or I guess last all occurred to me, the society that I have to live in is that society of people who enabled, allowed, encouraged, and supported my mother in her abuse, right? The problem with being the victim of abuse is not primarily, in my opinion, your relationship with the abuser, terrible though it may be. That could be dealt with, that could be moved into the past. It is the society as a whole that allowed it to happen. That's first and foremost, because that society, I mean, unless you want to go live in the woods, right? That society you still have to live in. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is much quicker. The second thing is that if you are a victim of abuse, right, the, the main purpose of abusers is the main, main goal, or at least the necessary but not sufficient thing they need to achieve is your isolation. Yes. Right. So the way that the abuser continues to isolate you in adulthood, even if you have no relationship with the abuser, not that you ever did, right? You're just an object, a thing to be used. But... The isolation occurs because if and when you talk about a history of abuse, so you have a close friend, close friend says, how are you doing? You say, well, I'm having a tough day. 
You know, I was at the coffee shop this morning, and a man turned and snarled at me who had the same mustache as my dad. It kind of freaked me out, and I've been experiencing this, and I've been dealing with that, and so on. How many friends that we have are comfortable and empathetic and compassionate and humane in listening to and helping us out with the tragic histories which were inflicted upon us and how many people get kind of uncomfortable and you can see them squirming and wanting to change the subject. To which we are almost feel compelled to say as victims of abuse, oh, I'm sorry, is my tragic history of child rape making you uncomfortable? At the whole time we're told, never blame the victim, never blame the victim, right? But at the same time, when we reach out in simple for simple human compassion to help us deal with the horrors that were inflicted upon us when we were helpless and dependent children, people get kind of uncomfortable. And that's how we are isolated, is that we are taught repetitively with like literally monotonous metronome regularity that to be harmed makes other people uncomfortable. To have, ha to have been an innocent victim of child abuse makes other people uncomfortable. And thus, the abuser wins because of the cowardice of those around us to listen to the simple human tragedy of having been harmed as a child. Because they give you a kind of history that either you cover up and pretend isn't there, which isolates you, or you attempt to share where legitimate and appropriate, which also isolates you. Because people don't want to hear, right? I'm sorry, maybe you live in an environment where people do want to hear, <laughs> in which case, though, I don't think you'd be having these dreams. <laughs> um, that's a really interesting aspect. Actually, you're completely right about isolation, and it's not even... Actually, the whole the way the whole situation happened, of course, it like evolved over time, or progressed, rather, Um it's he completely isolated me and brainwashed me to just not talk to anybody. So, and we lived in houses the entire time. We moved a lot, but it was also in houses. So, and he always kept it to like within the confines of the house. So, I don't know if anybody could really, if anybody, nobody really knew if anybody like from the outside, the acquaintances I had, they always thought because I'd be smiling and happy. They thought everything was happy and dandy. Um, but what you said about other people not listening, I, I do have, you know, some people in my life who unfortunately share those experiences and they can actually relate. But some um, people, they, they're I'm no longer close with them, but um, there was a person who was close with me whom I, I shared some things and he was really empathetic, but he said that like he just didn't know how to respond. He himself has a really, I guess, violent past and he, he like he has a history of suppressing his emotions and dealing with it physically rather than resolving it like the emotional issues and he just like said I don't, I don't know what to say I, I just I can't handle sorry, when you say it. sorry interrupt when you say dealing with it physically do you mean acting um, out do you mean self-medicating yeah like that but I mean not well, that's not dealing against. with it right that's not right. hiding from it yeah. physically yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly it physically. Right. Okay. exactly yeah. exactly I mean, but, like if I take heroin for a toothache, I'm not dealing with it. <laughs> I'm avoiding it, right? Yes. So does that, does that person has, um, have a potential to, um, to 
um, I don't know, improve in that area. Well, no, let's go back if you don't mind. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. was, it just you and, was it just you and your dad? Yes. Well, uh, sorry, actually, my, my sister, too, um, but she's like 13 years older than me. So that similar things happened, but when she was older. Sorry, similar things happened to her in, in, in the abuse? Yeah, with dad. And your mom? No, no, no. The, no, they, they divorced when I was three, and she's, they're in different countries. They're in different countries, so um, so your sister would have had some exposure to you in the home, and your mom obviously didn't Sorry, visit. Sorry, she's, um, she's, um, she's my half-sister by my dad, so, okay. and I, I've only met her when I, when I came to Canada, and they were, and she similarly came to Canada, but we lived in a different parts before that. Right, right. Now, are you trying to say, if I understand this correctly, I don't mean a note of criticism in this, I'm just curious. Are you trying to say that you were able to mask the effects of this kind of unbelievably horrific abuse in such a way that you actually appeared as completely normal to everyone? Yes. Yes. Do you think that's believable? Um, what do you mean, to you or to everybody else whom I was masking it for? Do you think that it's possible? Uh, when, when did the abuse uh, start? Well, I guess well, I mean, some I of it must have been around. Well, like, it started when I, when I came at, like, 13, but it was, like, really gradual and then gaining revolution. <laughs> right. Um, and what, what was there? Was there any abuse before that? Um, and obviously, you said, I don't think sexual abuse, but were there other kinds of abuse before that? Yeah, other kinds, like, very different kind. Like, with, with my mom, like, neglect and just, like, bad parenting, even though I, I didn't really realize it and I was really, really attached to my mom, which I thought was love at the time. Yeah. Okay. I just felt like my mom um, uh, didn't put me as a priority. She was um, very promiscuous sometimes with different men, and I had... Um, had witnessed a lot of that. Um, I, I didn't feel like she had a spine, and basically, I didn't want to be like her. So that about summarizes. Sorry, did you say that your mother had witnessed some of the abuse? No, no, no. I, I witnessed some of her uh, promiscuity. Oh, your mother's child. promiscuity, right? Yeah. And did your mother witness any of your father's cruelty while they were still married? Um. She said that when I was born, um, she, she also had a, a son, my brother, from a different marriage, who was 13 years older than me, and um, she, she said that he, he, he's been really attentive and nice to him, and considered him a son, adopted him. Until I was born, then there was this division between mine and what is this kid, and he started treating him aggressively, and... Um, then one day he just said, like, I'm leaving, basically. That's my mother's story. Sorry, sorry, I just, uh, I, I just want to make sure I understand that part of the story. So your mother says that your father uh, was more attentive to this other son? Yes. Um, and then when not you until along, I was born, yes. Right, and then when you came along, um, it was, uh, he, he became more aggressive? Yes, he became aggressive towards him because... I don't know, he felt like this, he felt like a, a biological attachment to me, that he felt like I was his daughter and then he wasn't his son anymore, something like that. And he, he felt like he was foreign and 
he, he didn't want him with me. And then to the point when he, when he left for Canada, he'd be calling my mom saying, come over, um, except don't bring your son, just, just the, the daughter and mom. Wow. I mean, of course, I shouldn't be shocked. I shouldn't be shocked that he was pretty much a dick this way because, of course, he's, according to your reports, uh, pretty monstrous in other ways. But, um, I mean, that just sounds like a a bunch of nonsense to me. Um, uh, You know, people people so often sort of make up these stories about why people do the things that they do, and it's almost always just nonsense. But... um, so, so she certainly knew that your father had the capacity for cruelty uh, and uh, 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 neglect and, and so on, right? Because she saw that yes. with her own son. Okay. Yes. And I mean, the, the way she described it is like he was this, you know, fluffy rabbit when they got married. And they were together for like seven years before I was born. And then all of a sudden, he became this monster. And then when he, when he left, he, he called. He started calling me when I was about 10-ish or something. Um, and uh, he'd always be calling him. He was very aggressive. Basically, it was just like listening to his monologue saying like how stupid everybody is, including myself. Um, and she knew all that. But basically, she uh, encouraged me to keep talking just so I can please him so that he invites me to come to Canada so I have more opportunities. Why wouldn't she go for full custody if she knew that he had this capacity for cruelty? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. I bet you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we can say we can say lots of we can say I don't know about a lot of things, but when it comes to our families, you know, who we've known for decades, we may not know down to the last detail, but we usually have some pretty good ideas, right? Like when you say full custody, meaning that he no longer has custody over me, right? So, well. Like, she wanted me to come here, so then she eventually can as well. Uh-huh. Okay. All right, so uh, there's obviously a pretty selfish motive there then, right? That she uses you as sort of an anchor baby or a grappling hook to get to get into the country, right? Um, sure, although I would like to believe she would also like a better future for me, sort of, in a, in a sense. Well, was it a better future? Ah, uh, well... Like Hmm. Here, but I got a ask- pedophile for you. Does that is that a great future for you? No, it's not. It's not, right? I mean, I don't you, can't, you can't possibly expect me to accept, and I, I don't mean this with any hostility towards you, but you can't possibly expect me to accept that you being handed over to a pedophile is uh, out of concern for your future and, and, and love for your potential. I don't think she um, ever re- ever realized that he was this way, maniac. Well, uh, she knew him for 10 years, right? You say they were together for seven and then he left when you were three? Yes, yes. Okay. Well, um, I don't know what she knew, mm-hmm. but I can, tell you, I can tell you this. If for some incomprehensible reason I was forced to send my daughter to somebody who I knew had at least the potential for cruelty or neglect I would be all over my daughter's experiences I would be cross-examining her I would be grilling her I would be trying to find out as much as possible 
about everything that occurred because I knew, for whatever reason, I would be sending her into a situation that might be dangerous for her. Uh, see, we didn't really have that kind of relationship with my mom, even though like I was very much attached to her and I was always with her. Well, I was just in proximity with her, but we didn't really connect. Um, we didn't really ever talk or <laughs> she didn't have discussions about me or asking how I am. We're, we you actually see, never say, really didn't. Hang on, you, you say you didn't have that kind of relationship? This is not a uh, kind of relationship, like a different kind of horse. This right, is a relationship sorry. where you actually talk about things that are important and you have a soft place to land and you have a connection with someone who can help protect you from what's happening. That's not a I, kind of relationship, like a different kind of, 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 of juice. That is no, that's, a relationship. That's right. I, I don't know. So what I mean to say, I don't, I don't really have a connection with my mother. I didn't really have like a parental relationship with her. Okay. And I, again, I have to correct you because you say, well, I didn't have that. Sure. But the truth, the, the truth is that that's your mother's job to provide. Yes. Right? Like if I say, well, I just didn't have enough food as a child, that's not a very accurate statement. And that absolves the caregiver of responsibility. The truth of the matter is... I was not provided with enough food when I was a child. Right? You say, well, I didn't have that with my mom. Like it was, you know, well, we just, you know, we didn't have a hula hoop, <laughs> you know? No, that's, that's not what I mean. It was just, uh, you know, we must have left it at the park somewhere, right? I mean, that's not the reality, right? right. And people, people have this story, and I've heard this story so many times before with, uh, often it comes from moms, right? So the, the, the adult child goes to the mom and says, mom you know, dad was a jerk or dad was mean or dad was cruel or in, in your case, dad was like the embodiment of human evil or whatever it is that you want to, however it is you want to want to call it. And the mom says, uh, I'm shocked because he was nice at the beginning. Right? And I've heard this, uh, I don't know, so many times. And the, the reality is, of course, I mean, to me, it's never true. I mean, this is just the way I, you know, uh, it's just not true. I mean, if, if your mom has no idea who your dad is after 10 years, that's just not credible, right? It's like, it's like uh, me studying Japanese for 10 years, uh, speaking it, practicing it, eight hours a day, six hours a day, writing it, getting tested on it, getting passing grades, studying it for 10 years, and then claiming later on, well, I, I, I didn't know anything about Japanese. You can't live in proximity with someone and then claim to have no idea of their character. It's just not believable. We just can't. Um, I don't so, understand so, wait, a lot of reasons. Hang on. Sorry. Let me just finish the second point. Sorry to interrupt. And the second sure. point is, but let's say, let's say even it's true. Let's say that you have kids with a guy and he's perfectly nice for the first two years, three years, or whatever. And then he just turns mean. Well... So what? I mean, that's like if, if I bring a dog home and the dog is really nice and then when my daughter is three, it just starts biting her and then I continue to have that dog in my daughter's life for the next 15 years and she's terrified of dogs. she got bite marks all over her goddamn body. What the hell does it mean if she comes to me and says, Dad, what the hell did you let this rabid, crazy-ass dog around me all the time biting me? And I said, well, but when you were a baby, the doggy was quite nice. <laughs> what would that mean? It doesn't mean a goddamn thing still have the responsibility to protect. Dog starts biting your children. Get rid of the goddamn dog. Anyway, 
So it doesn't, even if it is true that there's nice and then it turns not nice, it doesn't change a damn thing about parental responsibility to protect. Absolutely not. I mean, I don't understand a lot of her reasoning. Um, she actually knew some of the things, but she stayed in the marriage because I, I asked her why. And she's like, um, more or less for economic reasons. Uh, and she was like, I guess, at the point she would have been a single mother of two, which she ended up being anyway, but uh, I, I don't know why she stuck it out with him. Again, like I told you, I feel like she had no spine again, goes back to her own childhood, I guess. But um, the now, um, actually, hey, I do want to... Hey, 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 hey. Ah. Uh, <laughs> okay, Claude, uh, go ahead. <laughs> do with moms. And I'm, look, I'm just sensitized to this because I've just been reading a lot about women's role in the cycle of violence. I've been doing a lot of shows on it. Okay. And always it's the same thing, right? So the evils of the dad are presented as standalone evils that are just terrible. But then when the immoralities of the mom come up, what happens? No, no, I believe both of them. Like, I understand both of their childhoods have been the influence of how they are now, which is not good. I'm not saying that she... I'm not excusing her. I'm and, just saying you know, the, first person, uh, the first person you started to excuse based on childhood was your mom. And listen, look, obviously everybody knows that childhood has an influence on adulthood. Of course. I mean, nobody's saying otherwise. But we, we don't ask the victim to pursue that line of reasoning, right? Right, so, so if your mom goes to a psychologist, which I'm sure would be a fine idea, but if your mom goes to a psychologist, then a psychologist can, in a non-judgmental way, examine the influence of your mother's childhood on her terrible decisions as an adult, right? Right, but I'm not going to fix my own tooth if I get a cavity. I'm not going to do my own appendix removal if I get appendicitis, if the only thing I have is a rusty spoon, because that's the job of the professional. But the job of the victim is to process the feelings of outrage and particularly anger Right, that's the scientifically the best way to avoid recurrence of the abuse, right? Is to process the feelings of anger and so on. But what happens is we generally and don't wanna I don't wanna define your experience for you, but generally what happens is we start to get angry and all these social defenses kick in. Particularly with moms, right? Sometimes it's one it's always as I've said for years, there's always one parent who gets away in these kinds of situations, right? And this is why I think you're still having the dream. Until you have moral clarity about your history and assign the proper responsibility to everyone. Because what you need to process, of course, is what happened to you as a child when you were a child. And as a child, you didn't know about your parents' childhoods and the role that early childhood experiences have in influencing positive and negative decisions as adults and blah, 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 right? You just, you weren't protected, you were harmed, you were abused, you were isolated, you were violated in every conceivable way. And those are the original and true experiences of your history. Now, if, I mean, I was going to say if you were a rape victim, but you are a rape victim, for which I'm incredibly sorry. It was monstrous. Monstrous. I can't, I can't fathom these human predators, and I can't tell you what I think we should do to them. But we do not ask the rape victim to empathize with the childhood of the rapist, Right? We just, that would be inhumane and inhuman. 
it would be to continue the abuse. Because, of course, if empathy for childhood was such a value, we would focus, I think, a little bit more on the child rapist rather than the victim of child rape. Right? Because you did not violate your father's childhood, and you are not responsible for who your father became, but your father sure as hell violated every conceivable aspect of your childhood. Right? Right. So if we're supposed to have empathy for people's childhoods, <laughs> then you still have every reason to get angry because your father violated yours in unbelievably egregious ways. So you're saying um, to help stop having those nightmares, I should resolve what happened? Because I've, I've been trying to do that for like years now. But <laughs> no, I think, I think the reason that you're still having dreams about being in danger is because you're still in danger. I mean, it's not, right? The reason you're still having dreams about being in danger is that you're still in danger. Like, I used to have have tons of dreams about my mom. Why? Because I kept seeing her. Now, again, you know you're not seeing your dad or whatever, right? Right. But but in your dream, this is why I asked about the people around in your dream, right? Yes. So, if you're in a situation with people who had a duty to know, Right. See, see, pe- pe- people claim ignorance all the time. Well, I didn't know your father did this. Or I didn't know your mother did that and so on. It doesn't matter. Right. If, if you hire a lawyer to do a job and then that lawyer screws it up completely and then says, well, well, I, do, I don't know the law. Is that a valid defense? Yeah, are you saying that um, my friend... No, no, wait, 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 wait. One, or... one, step, one step at a time. One oh, is that a valid defense? No, it's not. <laughs> step, why not? Well, because as a lawyer, that's his responsibility to know the law. Yeah, he has a duty to know because that's what he's that's what he's, he's advertising his services as a lawyer. So he then doesn't get to say, well, you know, I studied uh, – uh, it turns out I studied ancient anarchic Celtic law from 1,500 years ago, so I screwed up your case completely. You don't get to say, oh, well, if you didn't know the law, that's okay because you didn't know what you didn't know and blah, 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 right? And if you're going to be a parent to someone, you're going to have children with someone, then you have a duty to know how your child is doing. You have a duty to know the possible risks for your child. You have a duty to protect your child. Like if your child has some god-awful skin disease and you, didn't, you don't take that child to the doctor, you don't take that child to the doctor and then you say, well, I couldn't treat the disease because I didn't know what it was. That's not a defense, right? You have a duty to know what that disease is. You have a duty to protect your child. You have a duty to support and nurture and love your child. That's, I mean, that's the job as a parent. So parents who say, well, I didn't know that this bad stuff was going on, that doesn't matter. You have a duty to know. You have a duty to find out. And if you don't find out, that's actually even worse. So I think that you are surrounded by people who are making up innocence-sounding stories. And because of your history, it's hard for you to see them clearly for what they are, which is people excusing themselves at your expense, refusing to own up to the wrongs that they did, and thus diffusing the natural and healthy anger that you should be feeling at having been so royally trashed as a child. They are defending themselves, they're fogging your history, they're fogging your moral self-righteousness, they're fogging the anger that you need to experience, as far as I understand it. Of course, I'm no psychologist, it's sort of my layman's understanding of how it's supposed to work. 
the the experience of anger and betrayal and violation from people who had a sworn moral duty to protect you from all harm and instead exploited you in medieval Old Testament primeval would shame an ape kind of ways. And I think until you see that stuff clearly, the degree of violation, and that your parents and your community are responsible for what happened. The effects of childhood abuse cannot be hidden. I cannot imagine any child who is being raped at home who can look completely normal outside the home. Because either that means the child feels completely normal, which is obviously crazy, you can't get raped and feel completely normal, or the child can fake a normalcy which the child has never actually experienced. Do you understand that? That can't happen. Like mm -hmm. I could pretend to speak Japanese, right? But I'm not going to speak Japanese unless I study, learn, and know Japanese, right? Yeah. So if you've never experienced normal, you can't fake normal. That's like me pretending to speak Japanese having never studied it. I may make some Japanese-ish kind of sounds, right? So you couldn't fake normal. Which means that everyone around you had to have some kind of intuition that something was off because you weren't normal. You'd never experienced normal, right? So how could you pretend it in ways that were completely convincing? Can't happen. Um, well, actually, it's just that I, I, was, I was brainwashed to the point like to keep everything to myself, so I didn't really share anything. And then on the outside... Right, but not... This is my point. Children share. The fact that you weren't sharing everything is my point. I mean, I can't get my daughter to not share a thought that goes through her head. <laughs> not that I'd want to, but I'm like, at some point, you know, take, take a breath, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, like, she, she'll, she'll talk before she even wakes up in the morning. And then I have to tell her to stop talking at the end of the day so she can fall asleep. <laughs> So when you tell me, well, I, I, I appeared normal because I didn't share anything, that just reinforces to me the reality that you don't know what normal is. How could you? And therefore, you were signaling everything that was occurring. Uh, people maybe have chosen to ignore uh, those signals, right? Of course, right? Right. It's a whole lot easier to ignore the obvious uh, signals of child abuse than it is to get involved in actually protecting children. And again, you know, we're... I'm an anarchist, but we're just talking about the general societal norms. You know, make a goddamn phone call, report a problem, have an expert come in and investigate. This child never shares anything. This child appears to have no emotional life. This child is incredibly guarded. And we know there's divorce. We know that there's step brothers, stepsisters. We know, right? Let's find out what's going on. Um, so everything, I'm still in danger because of my mom, because I still ha I'm still in touch with her. 
Well, and, you know, I'm not saying do or don't be in touch with her, but what I am saying is that don't, if you care for people, and I get that you care for your mom. You said you were very attached to her and so on, right? And I'm not going to try and talk you in or out of that. That's your experience or whatever. But if we care about people, the most essential aspect of love is don't accept bullshit. Mm-hmm. Right? If we care about people, don't accept their shallow stories and, and excuses. Keep pushing. Get to the truth. So sit down with your mom. Talk about this stuff. It was her duty to protect you. It was her duty to protect you. And you got raped. I mean, you understand, if, if, if I hired someone as a security guard, and that security guard fell asleep, and my house or my business got robbed, I would sue, right? right. As an average status, right? Because there was a duty to protect, and that person failed. Oh, and what's more important? Something gets stolen from my house or my entire childhood? Uh, that's the thing um, like she's in a different country right now so like we sort of have a long distance relationship and I, I like to keep it at a distance up until like we're able to meet in person and I don't know how to confront her because I don't know it's almost like when I'm with my mom, I, I go back emotionally, I go back uh, into being that little child where I'm so inhibited and like we don't, I don't know how to talk to her. You comply with her needs. You, you hide yourself just as you did, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, this is where idiot internet philosopher steps aside and makes his usual recommendation, which is to talk to a therapist. Ah, yes. <laughs> that was my other question. Um, um, how would you recommend finding a, a good therapist? Or would you recommend anyone? Because I'm in Toronto. I would not want to take on the onus of recommending you to someone. But what I will say is that I've done a show or two uh-huh. on this. Okay. Uh, Mike, if anybody knows the FDR number of the show, okay. I think it's in, the, it's in the four digits. It's how to find a great therapist. You can look into that. These are my thoughts on it. Okay. But practice for these kinds of confirmations. Oh, sorry, these confrontations or whatever. You practice with a therapist and you journal about it, you read about it, and so on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks a lot. Okay. Well, listen, I, I'm incredibly sorry about what happened to you. I, I mean, words can't express. I'm, I'm so sorry. I mean, I just I start to cry even just thinking about what happened to you, and I'm, I'm just so incredibly sorry. This is the exact opposite of what you should have had as a child. What a, what a terrible burden to be, to be placed upon such young shoulders. I'm, I'm so incredibly sorry for what happened to you. Um, I'm sorry that you were harmed so greatly by the people who were supposed to protect you the most. I'm sorry that you live in a world where this stuff goes unnoticed, unremarked, Avoided, enabled, and supported by almost everyone you'll ever come in contact with. It's something I aim to change, but I'm just so sorry that you even have this to deal with now. That haven't been said. You know, that which doesn't kill us, bloody, bloody, blah, you know, makes us stronger and so on, right? Yes. I believe the, uh, the philosopher from American Idol is probably quite correct. Uh, Kay Clarkson, I think. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, I, I can't believe that Mustachio Bassett Nietzsche ripping off a waitress. It's astounding. Anyway, but you can get you know incredible wisdom and depth and truth 
you know, only those who've been greatly harmed can get to the essential truth about a harmful society. And you will get to that truth, and through that truth, you will achieve a kind of love that people who weren't harmed will never achieve. So I'm, I just want to tell you there's, of course, a light at the end of the tunnel, and all great things can happen. <laughs> but I'm just, I'm sorry that this is the path. Right. Thank you so much. And thank you. Your work is so invaluable, and it's been life-changing. And thank you so much for taking my call also. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Mike, did anyone get that FDR number for the How to Find a Great Therapist cast? Yeah, it's podcast uh, 1927. How to find a great therapist. 1927. Mm-hmm. Two years before the crash. All right. <laughs> All right. Next up on the line today, we have Yasin. Hello. Hello, hello Steph. Thank you for having me on the show. It's uh-huh. my pleasure, Yasin. How are you doing? Uh, I'm great. It's, uh, sorry, a bit, uh, it's kind of hard to believe I'm talking to you. Okay. Um, First of all, like yeah, thank you for having me on the show, and I hope everything's going well with your treatment. Like, uh, it's yes, great. Uh, it's it's, that you're doing thank well. You for the, thank you for the question. Let me give you the quick update. So, a week ago Wednesday, I had my last uh, my last chemo, and uh, I'm found it a little tiring, um, and uh, I'm down to like twenty percent eyebrow cover. But <laughs> um, uh, it's it's not too bad. This round, I had a bit of vomiting. This round and the last round, yeah. not too much. The nausea meds couldn't quite uh, tackle it, but um, I'm actually doing the show while walking, which is why occasionally you'll hear me go, as a bug flies <laughs> into my face. But um, uh, yeah, I did, I did some exercising last night, a half hour of cardio, you know, 25 minutes of some fairly heavy weights, and I felt all right. So uh, it's, um, it's looking good. I have uh, uh, 17 rounds of radiation therapy to go. Um, that may affect my voice. Um, it sort of basically gives you a sunburn on the back of your throat. Uh, so I may have to, we've, we've kept a bunch of material back, which I can sort of release during that time, but I may not be able to do a live show. Not sure yet. Should last for about two weeks. Um, hopefully uh, it won't be too bad, but it's basically going to be like having a strep throat for two weeks and then I'm done. And, uh, I, uh, I am consciously not going to live with the fear of recurrence. There is of course a possibility of recurrence, just like there's a possibility of getting hit by a bus, maybe slightly higher (laughs) odds. Uh, than that, but um, that's great. Then you know, that is going well yeah. for you. Yeah, I mean, what am I going to do? I sit there and, and check myself for lumps, you know, three times a day. Well, that's just then it's back, no matter what I do, right? So, like, it's back in my head. So, I'm going to live with the depth and richness of the experience, but without the paranoia of recurrence. That's what I'm going to aim for. I'm sure I'll be able to achieve it. And um, in many ways, I'm grateful for. For the experience, though, I'm not sure I would have picked it out of a deck of cards <laughs> as the ace in the hole. So thank you for your concern. I appreciate that. Uh, thank you to everyone who sent their kind uh, wishes. And um, uh, I'm all ears now. Um, what's your question? Well, uh, it's, um, my question is, I've, um, so to say, like, not even two weeks ago, I, I would have to say like I had to start applying UPB in my life for this, I guess, for, for the sake of my own sanity. All right. <laughs> Sounds like a voluntary choice. UPB <laughs> cornered me with a machete, <laughs> so I signed well, up. I, don't want, I certainly don't want it to sound like that, but... Uh, uh, I know, I know. Philosophy is like it's someone else. that we, uh, we buy a drink for, and then sometimes it feels like a bit of a date rape. Anyway, but go ahead. Well, so, well, my problem is... Um, um, 
I've uh, started uh, feeling very confused. I mean, I'm like on, so to say on the uh, conscious level, I'm, I'm certain that I'm doing the right thing and because it has positive effects for me and everything, but emotionally it seems that it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to deal with. Gosh, I hope so. <laughs> oh yeah. And, uh, no, I'm sorry. I mean, this is, this is the challenge, right? You know, was, was ending slavery a good idea? Yeah, of course it was. No question. Great idea. Was it a relaxing and fun thing to be an abolitionist in Alabama in 1840? Well, no, right? Yeah. Well, right. Do, doing the right thing is doing the rational thing. But if you're surrounded by dangerous and irrational people, then we're always pretty ambivalent about doing the right thing. Like, it's not hard to be against slavery now, right? Yeah. And then the reason and the emotional experience are one and the same, right? But it was pretty freaking hard to be against slavery or against racism 200 years ago. Yeah. So I would hope that doing the right thing uh, 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 brings you intellectual satisfaction and emotional terror. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, I wish it were different. I really do. And we hope, of course, and we will make a world wherein doing the right thing is both intellectually satisfying and emotionally rewarding. But right now, it's intellectually satisfying and emotionally terrifying. Is, is that, I don't want to say terrifying, it is sometimes for me, but how does that strike you? Well, it's uh, how it strikes me. It's, I, I did expect that you said it many times in your in your books and in your podcasts and everything you said many times since when so I did expect that it's, it's just that, like the, the confusion and all that and I, I guess uh, I will, what I want what I really wanted to um, uh, I kind of wanted to give us uh, some background to how it happened and uh, I'm really interested to, to hear your thoughts about it yep go ahead uh, so uh, to keep to keep a long story short, I guess, well, like um, a month ago, I broke up with uh, my girlfriend, whom I thought they loved very, very much. We were together for four years, and she was my first girlfriend. And I was very insecure before that. Never had a girlfriend before. I'm 25 now, so I was 21 when when uh, we started going out. And and um, to, I guess to describe our relationship in, in a nutshell, it was kind of like Bruce and Sheila from uh, Real Time Relationships book, kind of like uh. along those lines. Uh, it, it was so it was so accurate that uh, like when I was uh, listening to the audiobook, I just started crying when because like, it it was just spot on right right on the uh, right on target. I couldn't. I couldn't believe how like that that it's possible <laughs> that you'd be so correct about it. And um, well, I appreciate so, that. That book, of course, is an homage to the colonies. I've got Bob and Doug to insult my Canadian listeners with stereotypes, and I have Bruce and Sheila to insult my beloved Australian listeners with stereotypes. But I'm very glad that you um, you found that part helpful. But sorry, please go on. And um, and so how it uh, happened? I, I started listening to your. Um, podcasts and like your show like since October it's not it's not been that long but um, I had a little, I have a lot, a lot of time on my hands so like I've been 
I guess since October, I've been listening to uh, maybe two, three, sometimes four hours a day, like uh, very heavy time investment. And um, and I guess I kind of got infected by the UVB virus. I don't know how to call it because uh, it felt like I, I my relationship started deteriorating so fast and, and all that stuff and. And, but the interesting part is that um, so so we broke up uh, like about a month ago and and for a while like uh, I didn't feel much. I mean, the writing was on the wall. I knew it's going. But sorry, what did you have? A, sorry to interrupt. Was there a specific incident that you broke up about? Uh, was it a series of conversations? Uh, did you wake up one morning and feel a different way, or how did that occur? Well, it was um, my my girlfriend has always been. Uh, uh, pushing me so much, like she uh, and uh, criticizing me for not being ambitious, for for uh, pretty much having no goal in my life, and and that she and but that she loves me so much, and that I'm like perfect for her. But at the same time, she she has to find someone who knows what they want from their life. Oh. <laughs> I love you. You're perfect now. Change yeah. <laughs> exactly. And uh, but but. Well, I'm not really like I, I don't really want to talk about her. It's uh, like uh, right. something very interesting happened to me. Like so, after we broke up, like the last time, because it was in and out, in and out, in and out, it, and it was ridiculous. I couldn't stand it anymore. And and uh, so after our last breakup a month ago, it it, it wasn't such a big issue for me. I, I kind of accepted it, dealt with it. You know, uh, like everyone knew that it was going to happen, going to happen. Everyone around me and me myself included, like. Me included, and and for a while, I, like I felt fine. Uh, I was de- dealing with it, you know. I was listening to your podcasts, and I was de- like getting on with my life, I guess. And uh, not really. I mean, uh, I wasn't that busy, so like I had a lot of time to think about it. But anyway, and uh, I had this uh, friend of mine, like a very good friend. We we've been friends for eight years. We we're in boarding school together. And all that, like, I thought that he was my friend, but we'll get to that uh, in a little bit. So, so he came to uh, to visit me here in Bulgaria, and and uh, I found out that when he visited, uh, all of a sudden, like, I started feeling progressively more and more depressed. More like I was just sliding sliding towards uh, back into depression, as if. Uh, Sorry, you you said back into depression. Uh, so you've experienced that before oh yeah. the depression. Oh yes, okay. a lot, a lot. Because uh, my girlfriend was pressuring me so much, and and really just uh, I wouldn't even call it criticism. It was just she was blaming me for really being me. I mean, she she knew who I was. Uh, like she, I didn't force her into being with me. But anyway, and. Uh, so, so this friend of mine, he uh, he came here. He visited. We went to the Black Sea, and uh, we were supposed to have a good time. I I wasn't really having a good time myself, though. Like I, I didn't tell him, though. I didn't want to you know, spoil anything. So, uh, and when we went there, he started drinking like heavily. You know, like I I mean. He would get really, really drunk, and then he would sleep for three hours and wake up drunk and drink more. And and 
at some point, uh, I really got depressed. I And to the point that, I, interestingly enough, uh, I started missing my girlfriend a lot. To the point that, uh, to the point that uh, I, I uh, tried to call her and uh, uh, I texted her. I was like, I, I want uh, to work all this out. And, and uh, it, it was just ridiculous because uh, before that, I felt just fine. Uh, well, not just fine, but I was relatively okay and I'm dealing with the situation uh, and my friend like his behavior was just uh, putting me in this uh, terrible terrible like emotional state and uh, and he himself it became more than obvious to me that he really doesn't care about me because he knew very well that uh, how emotional I am about the whole thing she, he knew that he, he was that she was my uh, like first girlfriend that I I was very much. And he didn't ask you much about the breakup or how you were doing. Not at all. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> sorry to interrupt, but uh, you know, dr- drinking. Um, I mean, I'm not talking about a glass of wine at dinner or whatever, but but you know, like drinking to the point of getting really drunk and all that. I was. It's kind of insulting, because you know the person's basically saying, "Well, I can't stand you sober." <laughs> you know, it's like no, no, I, I, uh, it's it's insulting because when you know when you drink, you enter into an altered state of consciousness and so on. And, you know, if you guys met in boarding school, I assume you weren't drinking a lot back then. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, so basically, drinking is a way of putting uh, a different personality on. And it's a way of uh, distancing yourself from people. It's a way of distancing fundamentally yourself from yourself. But, you know, if I had a friend who had to get blind drunk every time he saw me, it, it would be kind of insulting. It's like, well, <laughs> so what? I'm, I'm not enjoyable to chat with when you're sober? I mean, you have to get drunk to spend time. I mean, that's just terrible. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that. Let, let me just uh, like get this straight. I mean, I, I wasn't the one drinking. I mean, he was the one who was... Uh... No, no, I know. But this, uh, okay. I'm talking about your friend, right? With okay, you. I mean, okay. that, that he, yeah, he can't stand you sober? Like, what? Or, or, of course, the other thing, you know, what happens with people who drink a lot around you uh, is that you either have the talk, right? Where you say, dude, what are you doing? I mean, I don't know what you say in Eastern Europe, but here, if I was pretending to be young, I'd say, dude, what we are you doing? Punch each other. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, chest thump, let's go invade Russia. Anyway, but, um, uh, but, but you have to have to talk, which is why you're drinking so much. Like, what's going on? Yeah. Like, this, well, this, this, this is unhealthy, because... this is dangerous, this is destructive to your body, this is harmful to our. You have to have, like, the intervention, which usually doesn't go very well. Um, or you have to be silent about the incessant drinking, right? And so you e- you, you're given uh, this horrible fork in the road, right? You either have some incredible blow-up, which if you're both on vacation is pretty tough, you know? I mean, you know, one of the worst places to have a breakup of any kind, whether it's a friendship or a romance, is on vacation. I mean, what are you going to do? You're already out in the Black Sea. You're already stuck there in the hotel. I mean, ah, right? So it's uh, excessive drinking also is a way of... Um, it's really invasive to other people. It either silences them... Or it puts them in this incredibly awkward position of having to confront you about your drinking. Uh, so it's, um, I mean, it's rude. It's nasty. I have a, a big, big hate on for excessive drinking. So I hope that's not coloring too much of my perceptions. Uh, it just seems to me like a very cowardly way to deal with problems. And basically what it does is it, it, it transfers all your problems onto other people, which I think is incredibly selfish and unjust. You know, it's like if I smoke, I, yeah, yeah. If, if, I, if I smoke, I don't get to then teleport my cancers into other people right that's not fair right but if i'm doing a lot of heavy drinking it becomes everybody else's problem and it's like well fuck you deal with your own goddamn problems and i sit down have the conversation with people because at that point 
You know, like you jump out of the plane, if it's about to hit the mountainside, you just hope to hit a snowdrift, right? Because you know for sure if you stay in the plane, you're dead meat, right? And so at that particular point, when I get angry enough at a person about that, I'll have to talk simply because I know if I don't have to talk, I got no relationship anyway. So I might as well give it at least one, um, one percentage chance of success. So I just have to talk and say, because, you know, the only reason we don't have the talk with people we need to be honest about is we imagine that the relationship can continue somehow without that talk. And uh, it's usually not the case, at least if you continue down the path of self-knowledge. Once you realize that the emptiness of the relationship has been revealed and, you know, then you're like, well, you don't put the, you don't put the um, defibrillator on the healthy person, but the person whose heart is stopped, well, you give it a shot because you know if you don't, they're going to die, right? So the relationship's going to die unless you shock it back to life with some kind of honesty. So I just wanted to mention that's, that's why people have the talk, certainly why I do. Well, that was impossible because, as I mentioned, he would just wake up drunk and then continue drinking. I would have loved to be able to talk to him. And I even tried while he was drunk. I told him, dude, like, go and get, like, some good sleep. We could, like, sober up and all that. And he just told me, he just told me, like, how about you deal with your own problems and I deal with mine? And I kind of, in my mind, I told myself, like, do you know what? Like, screw you. I'm like, okay, I'm dealing with my own problems. And I just left, you know? Yeah, you, you would then be one of my problems, which I'm going to deal with by not being here, right? Exactly. And I'm sorry about that. I mean, that's an eight-year friendship. It's a lot of investment. I'm, uh, I'm really sorry that that it came to that. Yeah. Um, it was really but you know, fuck but, him if he can't be sober. You know, you can't have a relationship with a drunk person. The only thing you can have a relationship with is with the alcohol. You can't have a relationship with a drunk person. Yeah. Right. You you can't. Like therapists, if you show up drunk to a therapist's office, you know what they'll say. I guess they'll ask me to leave. Yeah, go home. Yeah. Can't do therapy with you while you're drunk. Exactly. Because you, this is about truth and honesty and drunk drinking is the avoidance of both. Mm. And you can't do you can't do therapy while you're drunk. Well, so you know, it's like showing up for surgery with a full belly. They just send you home. Anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah. Well, and so like, and as I said, I left, and immediately when I left, I started feeling better. You know, I would still miss my, I still miss my girlfriend a lot, and I got back to Sofia, like, uh, and, um, like, I live here, and uh, I kind of uh, tried to get in back in touch with her, and, uh, and, uh, but I noticed that, like, after a day or two, that feeling that I had started, started to recede, I guess, it started to go away. I, all of a sudden, I was like, what, what am I doing? Like, I don't miss you, I, like, I don't want to have anything to do with you, I mean, it, and, like right. I just uh, miraculously when <laughs> when I decided Listen, to end and that relationship. You, sorry to interrupt, but you know that was a bit on the selfish side for you too, right? I'm unhappy with my friend. Hey, I'll try and get back together with my old girlfriend. Oh well, yes, yeah, so, it's kind of using her, right? Exactly. Well, I, I guess that I had the same thing going on with my family, like my uh, like my parents, especially my mom would. You know, would piss me off a lot. I would go back to my girlfriend, and my girlfriend would piss me off a lot, and I would go back to, uh, to them. And, and it's uh, confusing. To... Like anybody you've had a four-year relationship with, particularly your first real romantic relationship, you know, they say let's get back together. You're never gonna. No one's ever gonna be indifferent to that, right? So I just want to point out that uh, I hope that you'll apologize to her at some point because um, that was uh, kind of using her like a a log in a stream to float, right? No, that's why I mentioned Bruce and Sheila thing. And uh, okay. I realized that I was, uh, it's a, it's a two way street, obviously. And uh, I was trying to deal with it. 
Uh, yeah. Um, I but, sympathize. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm saying you're a bad guy, right? I mean, I sympathize. I really do. I really do. But it's, you know, it's confusing. It, it doesn't help her get on with her life if you occasionally bungee back in and say, I'm lonely. Let's get back together. Oh, no, wait. I'm feeling better. Let's not. Right? I mean, that's... I'm not trying to characterize what you did as exactly that, but I think you can understand that that would be, uh, you know, if we care about people that we've broken up with, and I think that's fine to do so, I mean, incompatibility doesn't mean immorality, um, we, we obviously want them to get on with their lives as much as possible and not be the sort of black hole that pulls them. Anyway, I just want well, to mention well, that. Well, so. Just to mention, to clear that out, it was never me who ended the relationship, actually. I was always the one who wanted to work things out it was always her who would uh, break it off and then like try to get back in. I guess. And uh, and and now it, uh, things really deteriorated and uh, ended for good because because I actually tried being honest with her and that didn't work out. Oh well, that will usually give you closure one way or the other. Yeah. How to, honesty is the the great doubter ender. <laughs> Have doubts, be honest. You know, and people say honesty. Um, ruined my relationship well honesty doesn't ruin relationships because if you're not honest you don't have a relationship to begin with <laughs> right yeah. i've i used this metaphor years ago in the show people say oh steph you know this show it breaks up people's relationships and so on and i mean that's complete nonsense i mean i tell people which is not it is not that shocking an idea to say to people be honest in your <laughs> relationship i don't think i don't claim i i have some originality but i don't claim to have invented honesty as a virtue <laughs> i mean i would be insane to you know, thou shalt not bear false witness against those around you. You know, don't lie. This is, you know, um, Yahweh got this down 5,000 years ago or whatever, right? So uh, so be honest in your relationships. This is not anything that – and people say, well, when I was honest, my relationship busted. Therefore, honesty busted the relationship. It's like, no. Uh, if you say that you have a bridge over a river and that bridge is super strong – and you really say, oh, we don't want to get to the other side of the river. Say, so, okay, well, you tell me your bridge is super strong and you want to get across the river, then the logical result of that is to go use the bridge to get across the river, right? And people take one foot on the bridge and the whole thing collapses. And then yeah. they say, Steph broke my bridge. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, a, it's understandable defensiveness, but it's got nothing to do with reality. Yeah. Well, it is... Um, um, and after all this happened, after I broke off the relationship with that friend, uh, uh, I find out that uh, I don't think that many of my relationships are uh, sustainable. I mean, like the I've ended like another friendship. It's just uh, yeah, but that wasn't really my like uh, what I was trying to get. So sorry for the long premise, but I really don't. Try, I'm trying to understand why this happened. Why was it that? Uh, why was it that uh, uh, the introduction of uh, this? I, not the introduction, but like um, my friend's visit would uh, bring back uh, this. Uh, would bring back my feelings towards my girlfriend somehow. Like why? Hello. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I let me start off with a, a short little rant about history and relationships, right? So if you are not honest in your relationships, and by that I don't mean that you lie, you just you didn't train in it, you didn't know about it, you weren't raised that way, it's not part of the culture, um, then let's say you become philosophical at the age of 30, right? 
Well, if you haven't been honest in your relationships, let's say you've had a friend for 10 years from 20 to 30, and then you go at the age of 30, hey, shit, think I'm going to be honest, right? Well, you are attempting to reverse a relationship, right? Reverse a relationship. That's hard. It's very hard. It's very hard. So... If you only choose a woman because she's physically attractive and then for some reason you know, she gains weight, she has some horrible skin disease or whatever, she becomes unattractive, then that's called a relationship reversal, right? If you marry some guy for his money and then he wakes up one day broke, well, that's a challenge to the relationship, right? Hypogamy thwarted, right? And so if you have a relationship that for 10 years has been dishonest, then that relationship is defined by that very dishonesty and the person chose you because you're not honest. And again, when I say you're not honest, I don't mean this like you're out lying or trying to defraud the guy. It's just there's not honesty in the relationship, right? Yeah. And so if you then say, well, I'm now going to apply honesty to a relationship that is entirely defined by and founded on dishonesty, then you're attempting to reverse the relationship. Right? Yeah. Which is like, you know, having huge tits wearing tiny tops and then saying, I, I want people to only look at my personality. I believe that would be in the plural, right? So to reverse a relationship is really, really hard. This is why so many people have such difficulty. If there's not a history of honesty and openness and intimacy and vulnerability and truth in the relationships with their parents, say, so if you're 30 and you say, well, I'm now going to be honest in my relationships, well, your parents define the relationship, if it's not an honest one, as avoiding the truth. And you say, well, now I'm going to bring the truth to a relationship that was defined by people who want nothing to do with the truth. Well, how do we think that's going to go? It may work. It may work. But we all, we all understand that the odds are not not great, right? I guess if that person was ho hoping for the same thing, maybe. But, but. Now, as to why as to why you um, as to why you wanted a relationship back with your girlfriend? Well, you say you always wanted that, but why did it show up so strongly? Well, um, my, this is my guess, right? So I don't know much about your history. So this is all, as it is generally on this show, wild-ass guess uh, with hopefully only minimal amounts of prejudice and projection. Well, we can hope. But um, if you have attachment problems, right? I mean, we're supposed to attach to our parents and in particular to our moms, right? I mean, we are physically attached to them through an umbilical cord for nine months, hopefully. And then we are... <laughs> hanging off their boobs for, you know, a year and a half, two years or whatever. So, you know, we got a couple of years of physical, virtually permanent physical attachment to a mom, which is supposed to be all kinds of cooing and caring and stroking and caressing and cuddling and tickling and playing and chatting and singing and all this kind of stuff, right? We're supposed to be enveloped and surrounded. And, and then we have attachment satisfaction, right? Like a full meal. Oh, that was a great meal. I'm, I'm full. Push right. I don't want to eat anymore. I'm great. I'm good, right? So when we have attachment satisfaction with a primary caregiver, with, say, a mom, then that's great. We, we, oh, mm, yum, tasty, 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 right? 
Now, if we don't have attachment satisfaction, if our mom is emotionally unavailable or physically distant or, uh, you know, doesn't breastfeed, jams us in a bottle, sticks us in a crib and turns on the Lion King or whatever. I mean, I don't know. There's so many things that can go wrong with attachments. It seems sometimes it's like, uh, you know, sinking a hoop no net from the parking lot um, when the dome is closed. But anyway, um, so we, if you have an attachment problem, then what, what we end up with is with like a tentacle coming out of our chest. A, a big suction tentacle that it's always until we deal with it, right? It's going to continually be trying to attach to other people. This big vacuum tentacle of need must connect, must connect, must attach. And all the hucksters and fraudsters and exploiters and abusers in the world can see these tentacles with their third eye of evil. <laughs> it's just the way they see it. They see this need and they exploit it. They exploit it through cults, they exploit it through the military, they exploit it through churches, they exploit it through nationalism, they exploit it through what is so, uh, so often the cult of the family, they exploit it through culture, they exploit it through any kind of group identity, right? I mean, anybody who wants to merge with a collective is fundamentally saying, I have an attachment disorder, uh, I was not close enough to my mom, I was not loved, I did not attach with my mother, and therefore I have this big vacuum swaying proboscis tentacle of need that needs to attach to someone and drain them, you know, like a vampire or like a zombie or whatever. I'm not saying this is you, right? And to a nutshell, I'm just saying this is my thoughts about, about the general principle. So you go to the Black Sea with your friend and your friend is emotionally unavailable. And my guess is that as a child, you did not exactly have uh, satisfying attachments with your mom. And therefore, you can't attach to your friend and you feel terrible anxiety, you feel terrible depression, and therefore you need to go and jam your tentacle onto your girlfriend. Worst porn film ever. But um, you need to, to, to deal with that anxiety by attaching to someone else. I have to be attached to someone because my attachment did not occur the way it should have and did not get satisfied, and therefore I'm always hungry, and therefore I'm always on the lookout for a meal, and therefore if one meal doesn't come through, i got to go grab something else. And so when your attachment to your friend was revealed as non-existent, you then wanted to attach to someone else to avoid the anxiety of the fact that you didn't get what you wanted and deserved and needed and should have had, of course, as a baby. Anyway, that's my sort of general idea or theory. Tell me, tell me what you think. Well, it, I think it's pretty accurate because uh, I never, I think I, I think I never had, really had any relationship with my parents. And, I mean, I know English from uh, from watching TV and movies. That's how I learned English, and that tells you, I guess, will tell you a lot about how much, you know. <laughs> time I spent with my parents and my dad was never there. He was always like working, always meeting with somebody. You know? And my mom would be uh, just a nervous, depressed wreck. And she, she would, and yeah, and they would fight all the time. Like, I mean, for years and years, I've been listening to them fight and like scream and yell and shout. And uh, it's just terrible. I mean, the uh, to the point where I've heard like things being thrown, like uh, violence going on for sure. Like uh, not so not sorry. all the time, but occasionally, I guess. It doesn't get, have to be all the time, right? Obviously, yeah. it doesn't have to be all the time. You know, they I mean. You don't, you, we don't say, well, it's not wife-beating if you only beat her four times a year. I mean, that's only once every three months, for God's sakes. It's not every day. No, no, still, right? Yeah. Still bad. 
right. Yeah. And, and I just wanted to, sorry, I wanted to sympathize, of course, but I also wanted to point out that this is part of a bigger issue, right? And, and I don't mean to diminish your own personal experience, but unsatisfied infant attachments are the foundation of what we call society, right? So all hierarchies, particularly political hierarchies and military hierarchies and other exploitive forms of hierarchy, all hierarchies require unsatisfied attachments on the part of infants, right? I mean, you couldn't have a Hitler without some unbelievably shitty parenting uh, on the part of, you know, German moms in the war. And none of it was, you know, all because of the bad moms. Or, I mean, the moms had to deal with their husbands being ripped off and blown up at the front in the First World War. This is going to make them emotionally unavailable to their children. It's not all because of bad moms, but bad parenting doesn't always mean that the parents are bad, right? It can happen sometimes, you know, a parent gets sick, right? I mean, it can happen not to the parent's fault, but it's still bad parenting because it doesn't meet the child's needs. It may not be the fault of the parent, but it's still bad parenting. But um, if you look at society with any level of, of depth and criticism, you will very quickly see that the most successful hierarchies are those that place the greatest barriers between parents and children. Uh, particularly when, and, and in fun functionally, particularly during infancy. And that is um, a very, very important thing uh, to consider. So, I mean, empathy is transmitted through the father, scientifically, right? The father is the one most responsible for teaching empathy. And I was trying to explain this to my daughter yesterday. And what I did was I said, I put my two hands together, you know, fingers up with thumb out, like I was just a very slow motion clap and then I stopped when the fingers touched. And I said, this is you and daddy. And then I clasped my fingers together, fingers intertwined. I said, this is you and mommy, <laughs> right? Because mommy grew you, mommy breastfed you, you guys are really intimately entwined. And that's wonderful, and that's great, and that's beautiful. I envy that sometimes. But that's not gonna teach you much about empathy because you're too close together. You know, empathy is an opera. You have to have some distance. Uh, and so it's largely the dad's job to teach empathy. And this is why we have such a dearth of empathy. The rise of fatherlessness is the destruction of empathy. And the destruction of empathy is the destruction of everything. Right? Fatherhood is the great natural resource. Empathy is its great product. And the, the, the loss of fatherhood, the, 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 the crashing of fatherhood, has resulted in incomplete attachments. Right? So you get rid of the father, usually the mom has to go out to work, which means incomplete attachments. You destroy the nuclear family uh, or you encourage women to go to work rather than spend time with their babies. Well, you end up with a whole bunch of kids growing up with attachment disorders and then they then run around with these tentacles and suck up to power and then hierarchies will take them. This is why fatherlessness leads to gangs, right? Gangs are a kind of cult and uh, they require fatherless children. They require children with incomplete attachments in order to get them to adhere to the cult. So um, uh, uh, churches need it, which is why they teach parents to tell these horrifying fairy tales to their children about hell and demons and, and burning forever and sin and punishment. And right, that, that separates the parents and the children, right? I mean, that's, that's horrifying and results in incomplete attachments within the church exploits, right? So um, you are, you know, this, this thing that occurred for you, which is terrible at a personal level, I don't want to wave that away or may, but incomplete attachments 
is the foundation of the state, is the foundation of the church, is the foundation of the military, is the foundation of all hierarchies that blend the individual with the collective. The collective is always the mom and the individual is always the infant. And somebody who yearns to abandon identity and merge with the collective is somebody who basically says, as Freud used to call it, this oceanic feeling, uh, somebody who wants the good mom they didn't have and will never have. Right? You, can't, you, can't, you can't fix childhood later. You can only acknowledge that it was broken and then right, work on it. You, you can't fix a house that's built on an ocean. It's just a bunch of bricks at the bottom of the sea. you got to go build somewhere else. Hey, this isn't going to be... You can't just keep pretending to re-erect these bricks on the... It's built in the wrong place. So I, I just wanted to point that out, that if there is this attachment... It's called an attachment disorder. And I'm not... You understand, I'm not describing this in any clinical sense whatsoever. Right? I mean, I want to be clear about that. This is just my way, my, you know, a little idiot way of using the phrase. Um, but, you know, I'm sure that psychologists have got really useful stuff about it. But um, a lack of attachment is... Uh, is is really essential uh, to to the brutality of hierarchies, and this is why, you know, when I say we have a multi generational solution to the problem of evil hierarchies, it's because it's really you're an exception, and you know, but good for you, man, it's fantastic. But it's really hard to reason with people who are seeking to fulfill irrationally, seeking to fulfill or or resolve attachment disorders. In the same way that it's really difficult to reason with someone who's drowning um, and you're saying to them, don't grab that piece of wood, right? I mean, they're not going to listen. You can't reason with them. And most people are in such a panic of personality disintegration, are in such a panic, annihilation panic of attachment disorder. Right? Attachment disorders are fundamentally death panics because if you can't attach to your mom, you, you have no security as a child. You don't, you're not going to get any resources. This is why we have such a hunger for attachment. And this is why I think biologically these urges have developed, that if we don't attach to our mothers, we must attach to some other collective, because it means we live in a pretty brutal tribe, uh, in a pretty violent situation, and therefore we need to attach to the strongest gang around, you know, whether it's as an alpha uh, or a beta, it doesn't really matter, but we need to attach to the strongest gang around, because that's society. This is why these needs, I think, have, have developed, but, you know, how do we solve the state? Well... Cuddles and caresses in the crib. Again, I know it sounds kind of crazy, but that's where the science leads. So, sorry to interrupt, but uh, I just wanted to put that in some kind of kind of context. Again, I would say, like, because I was really into the state, and I want to go to the army and those things. Uh, sure. Uh, I guess then you got a point there. Now, listen, I'm so sorry. Again, talking about attachment disorders, so now I'm going to abandon you. Oh, sorry. It's terrible. But listen, we've got other callers. And listen, hopefully you'll call back in at some point because I do have a question sort of about what it is you're going to do with your life. And I don't get a strong sense that I don't want to be like your girlfriend nagging you about it. But I'm just kind of curious about it. So hopefully you'll call back in at some point. Or maybe we'll just do a listener convo and talk about that some more because, I mean, obviously you're a blindingly smart fellow. And um, I, uh, I think that you have you know, staggering potential. I mean, dude, <laughs> what you're able to have done with the knowledge you've got so far is incredible. So if you want to chat further uh, about your life, uh, I'd certainly be happy to. But right now, I think, oh, I must move thank on. You. Much so I'd like to stay. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for calling in. Bye. All right. Next up is Charles. Go ahead, Charles. Hello, Charles. 
Hello, okay. Charles. Hello, hello. All right, somebody's had his latte. Go for it. Okay. Um, well, I'm really excited to actually be on the show. Um, my first question, my, my actual question is, um, what is the road I should take to, from being a broken person, actually, to uh, become an, an entrepreneur like you have been? I, I know your history is a little different because you have been an entrepreneur and then you uh, went into philosophy. I obviously do not want to become a philosopher. I think that's your job. Um, but I need to get from being broken to being able to, to yeah, get into life and, and all the same time uh, maintain um, high moral, moral standards in, in a system in crisis, of course. And can you give me some details? Uh, doesn't have to be anything specific. Whatever you're comfortable with about how you were broken and in what circumstances and under what conditions? Yeah, um, of course. Uh, well, I've, I'm I'm from Holland. Uh, I'm from uh, a family which was completely militarized. My mother was one of the first sailors in first of the female sailors in the navy. My father was a professional military. My uh, uncle, my uh, grandparents worked for the royal uh, for for the for the royal house. They were uh, accountant and telephoner. Um, same. Okay, so not not hyper military. I mean, not not. Yeah, well, my my, my yeah. other uh, um, grandfather was has fought in three wars. Um, so, yeah, pretty militaristic. What well, and and. Of course, I didn't want to stream in that uh, career, so I tried art, which did not work out for me because my dad kicked me out of the house uh, because he was uh, sick and tired of me, actually. Um, and so I tried psychology, which didn't work out for me. Um, so I tried biology, but at that time, I was so broken and... Um, unable to function uh, through. Now, sorry, well, you, you're giving me you're giving me the geography, but not yeah. the history, right? So, so what uh, what do you feel you didn't get as a child that you should have, or what do you feel you did get that you shouldn't have? Um, well, my father was a ranking officer. He wasn't my father, and my mother was. Uh, uh, wait, wait. My Sorry. friend. <laughs> Philosophical Paradox 101. My father yeah. was not my father. Uh, sorry, what now? Yeah, he, w he was like the, the, the sergeant in the house. So you had to follow his... Oh, so he wasn't your father. Like He was. He didn't act like a nurturing father. He acted like a drill sergeant at home. Yes. yes. Okay, okay. Okay. All right, go ahead. Um, uh, I obviously was... Uh, well, not obviously, but I was a mother's child. My sister is a real father's child. So there was a great divide in, in, in the family... Uh, politics uh, my parents divorced when I was 10 and it was like going from the Cold War into World War three that was that was just oh or before and during the divorce um, after the divorce uh, 
they, they wait. Just, they started yeah. fighting. Wait, they started fighting after the divorce. Isn't that so the whole point of getting divorced? Is you stop fighting? Yeah. That, well, that was my thought too. I I, I was completely. Perhaps I, I'm missing something. But, uh. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, my 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 parents were were. I I was almost happy when they were going to be. They they announced they were, were divorcing. I was like, well, maybe this will. Ten, uh, make the, the situation a little less tense and maybe we can get on with life and, and because my parents really uh, they, they they got the worst out of each other they they got under each other's nails and it was terrible and I thought well with the divorce this could be better but it, it just got worse and worse my uh, mother got got new friends which were also horrible um, and and my dad actually manipulated me to co- to move back to him so he could have a bigger house which i didn't know but it, it was all so yeah it's it's all manipulation and backdoor games and and that's that's also a bit of my question because you you focus so so hardly on on um spanking and in 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 the Netherlands, everybody's going to say to you, well, of course you don't spank your kids. It's, it's not going to yeah, happen. You guys are one of the first countries to outlaw. Yeah, but still um, a lot of abuse is going on. It's just oh, verbal. Oh, I have it's, no doubt. I mean, look, I, I have no doubt because people yeah. use the state as a family substitute, which means that they did not get their emotional needs met within the family, and therefore they tried to use nationalism uh, and socialism to recreate the family in the hopes that they can get their needs met through some fantasy but anyway go on yeah yeah that's the bottom line <laughs> you're very right there um and as, as, so i i i started listening to you i i uh, was already burnt out and, and because i just i didn't get into positive environments because of my history of course so the, the abuse kept repeating itself. Uh, it, it gradually became less and less, and now it's non-existent because I just don't see any people. Okay, now, do you mind if I just just say something before you continue? Yeah, of course. Because remember, this show is all about me, me. <laughs> but um, you know, it always amazes me. Like, I constantly chastise myself for being surprised by the perfectly predictable. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm like some I'm like some infant. It feels like sometimes because I'm shocked that the sun is coming up again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, it's it's embarrassing. You know, like the degree yeah. to which, and this has been my greatest lesson of being a public figure is that there's so much stuff that's perfectly predictable that I still retain the idiot capacity to, <laughs> to be surprised by. But one of those things, one of those things is this. Now, a dad, your dad, obviously, you know. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say obviously, confirm if it's true. Authoritarian tells you what to do, how to live, how to be, you know, how to make your bed and all yeah. all kinds of instructions, right? And, and of it's course, almost, also with, yeah. with, always with uh, the phrase, don't do as I do, do as I say. That's, I've heard yeah, you yeah. say that before, but it's pissed me off. So. <laughs> I, I'm a hypocrite. That's why I should have moral authority over you. Because, yeah. I mean, it, it, but, but it always amazes me that... Oh, we just talk about dads. It doesn't matter whether it's dads or moms, usually both. But So dads who tell their children what to do, 
you know, because they're so wise and so smart and so on, and then have a shitty marriage. Yeah. They lose I mean, that is so, it's, I mean, it's like, do you, do you listen to yourself, Dad? <laughs> I mean, you're, you're telling me all about how to live, but mom kind of hates you, which means either you married a woman who hates you, which doesn't really raise your uh, wisdom and, and knowledge and virtue in my eyes too much, or you married a woman who loved you, and now she hates you. <laughs> I mean, that's not good, right? If you, if you can't even get mom's love, then you're either an idiot or you somehow turned a loving woman against you, both of which, I don't know which one makes you worse. It's hard to say, right? But, but it's like, how, how, if you can't get mom's love, who the hell are you to tell me how to live? I mean, the woman that you married doesn't even like you, fights with you, divorces you, yells at you, throws things at you. So the woman that you said was, you know, the, the, who you promised to love and who promised to love you, you all couldn't even keep that word. So excuse me if I take your moral commandments with a certain amount of skepticism, but maybe first you could get mom to like you a little bit and then you could tell me how to live. Anyway, it's just amazing to me that, that people can do that kind of stuff with a straight face. But, you know, we live in a widely uh, various species. But anyway, go on. Yeah, so that, that uh, let, me, let me think. That was uh, kind of what, uh, why I started listening to you, of course, because uh, I was missing the eloquence to say those things, especially to my parents because I was so young. But I was still searching because I, I ran in the same conflicts with, with bosses and with teachers. And, um, and, and of, yeah, so two years ago I decided to go in, into therapy. Oh, um, huh? I said, "Oh, good for you." I mean, assuming it's yeah. a good therapist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've, it's a whole team of people actually. Um, oh, good. Yeah, I think Holland is making great improvements uh, towards self knowledge and um, and and also self responsibility. Um, I, I think Holland could be a, a great place for volunteerism and and uh, freedom to to grow from so yeah. that's that's kind of um, why I'm drawn between uh, your speeches because you're all you're most of the time talking about America and and a lot of people want to uh, see America as an example and, and think it's it's about time we, we, we really stopped. <laughs> yeah, that. absolutely. Don't follow America as an example. And, and listen, remember, I'm a money whore. So if you all want me to talk more about your country, you know, just send me the shekels. I am a cash slut. Uh, that's, that's the of important course, thing to remember. Course. Americans yeah. are very generous, so they get some attention. <laughs> anyway, to some degree. Anyway, go on. Um, well, the, the problem is I'm... I'm, I'm jobless at the moment so oh no no I, not I, you I was... i'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to you pay for, you pay for your therapy and i say this to any listeners do not donate to me if it's a choice between this show and therapy pay for your okay. therapy and don't worry about me so i'm glad that you're doing what you're doing i know it's hollands you probably don't pay but don't worry about that i, I wasn't trying to nag you i just sort of pointing out to people but well yeah. I, I i because every time you you ask for a donation i feel kind of guilty because you're a great help to me and uh I well, really don't listen. Let me let me just say. Listen, if if you can't pay, then then use and enjoy. That's that's kind of key, right? Okay. If you can't pay right now, just use and enjoy. That's what I want. Uh, I, like I don't want people who can't pay to also feel bad about not paying. <laughs> you know, because then it's like, well, you can't pay, 
uh, and therefore don't pay. I mean, that's uh, you, but continue to use the resource. This is not. Okay, I, I don't want you to feel bad about it too. That's that's. Okay, I won't. But I, w I will buy your books once once I get some some money. I will actually buy your books for retail price. I think that's a, a, a fairly. Well, I appreciate that, deal. but I just want to want to point out that buying my books is not a donation. I just like I don't. <laughs> I just want to point that out. Buying my books is buying my books. That's not the same as donating for podcasts and all that. I just want to point out that's kind of kind of separate. But but go ahead. Um, so so uh, let's continue. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm currently uh, volunteering at the, the animal uh, shelter. I'm I'm uh, getting my therapy. I I just got my driver's license. I just got a car. I'm looking for work now. But the problem are is, you a very uh, sorry? Are you a very heavy smoker? Yes. <laughs> okay, good. Because if how old are you? Twenty-seven. Oh, okay, okay. It's, it's going to say, because you sound like you're in your 40s. Dude, stop smoking. Anyway, go on. I, I, I try. I, I, I'm Wait still a minute. trying. You but... can't afford to donate to FDR, but you're a very heavy smoker. Mm. 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 Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. Oh, dear. I'm, I'm, I'm working <laughs> I'm on I it. Must, I must withdraw a tiny shred of sympathy. But anyway, go on, go on. Um... Uh, where was I? So yeah, I'm I'm really starting up uh, life. Actually, I'm I'm getting past not being able to do anything and being crippled by trauma and um, yeah, really getting active again. But the problem is, I've, I'm really forced to to apply to to jobs like the military industrial co uh, complex or I uh, oil drilling or all kind there there's <laughs> how do you wait, say it there, that, 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 wait wait you, you live in the EU right yeah what 27 countries yeah you speak two languages at least right I, I speak three I, I, I am three I actually okay. am um, Are some of them like non-smoking countries that are off the list <laughs> I'm just I'm just curious no I, I, I am thinking about um, maybe looking in, in Germany because the, 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 the laws are, are way easier for, for getting a job and, and getting yeah. uh, education inside the, the workplace. But here in, in uh, Holland, it's, it's like uh, the catch-22, they call it. Like you have to have... Um, the, experience the, to get a job, but you can't yeah. get a job if you don't have the experience, right? Yeah, okay. and, and you have to get education, but that costs money, so you need a job to get education. But yeah, <laughs> so so it's it's. it's well, no, really, listen. Are you saying that you don't have much of work history, right? Uh, all over the place, all over the place. That's a bit of a problem. I've I've moved seventeen times. I've lived in three different countries. I've uh, yeah I've been kicked around from my mother's to my father's, uh, kicked out of the house, had to move uh, to different cities. So I've I've been totally uprooted and I've got nothing left to to, to put it like that. And so what do you mean I, nothing left? Of of um, uh, and, and a circle of of people that that I can. <laughs> Uh, communicate with, or, or uh, well, my parents died the last two years, so I don't have oh, them sorry. anymore. Um, it's I'm I'm really all alone, and and it's all uh, down to me making sure that this this 
gets to to a point where I can say, yeah, well, we're we're reasonably happy now, and yeah. and I'm I'm doing good. I'm, I'm not depressed anymore, um, especially because you said, well, first of all, check if you're not just surrounded by assholes and. I did. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I have a problem. It turns out that it's carbon-based, weighs between 150 and 250 pounds, and surrounds me like the plague. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so I'm really working on that, but it's it's really tough to keep keep your back straight in this really bent society, especially the workplace. It's just not healthy anymore. It's, it's No, I know. No, I know. No, and I'm aware that uh, I ended up – one of the things that gave me the impetus for what I'm doing now is that it became – you know, as it became sort of morally sensitive and, and had integrity and courage and wished to speak up, uh, it became a bit of a challenge in the business world, right? Because – anyway, for reasons I don't have to explain to you. Okay, okay. Well, so the question is sort of how, how do you sort of do the entrepreneurial thing? Well, you're doing the therapy thing. You're doing the self-knowledge thing. Good for you. You know, fantastic. That's – that's all kinds of good stuff, and that's you know of course, of course what you should be, uh, what you should be working on. So good for you. Yeah, I, I really ended up watching your show because you had reason and evidence, and that's why uh, I continued following the process. I think uh, right. it was the right way to go, and I really want to keep it up. And I'm I'm really getting the hang of pointing out the gun in the room to the people here and. In, in in Holland, and I'm starting to get a bit more eloquent with with things. It's really difficult, and I'm just trying to keep practicing. But I I think I really need to start something of my own because there's no other way of maintaining. Yeah, I, uh, I think that's right. I, I think once you pass a certain threshold in your skepticism of society, fitting into any existing hierarchy becomes more and more challenging, right? So, yeah. you know, I, I, th I think you're right for what it's worth. If you can start something on your own, um, I think so much, so much the better. And you, so your question is sort of how, uh, how do you do that? Yeah. If you can give me some pointers. Right. Uh, is there anyone that is in your life? I know you say that you are alone to a large degree, but is there anyone in your life who you would consider uh, going into business with? No. <laughs> No? At the moment, Good. no. Well, just want to want to check that. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there uh, are there any particular fields of interest for you that could be economically uh, viable? Right. So, you know, well, all men like debate, but that doesn't mean that you can necessarily not for sure doesn't mean you can necessarily make a living at it. Um, of course, many have tried. A uh, few have. Many are calling. Uh, yeah. Well, I've 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 been thinking, and I've because I've had this large variety of, of studies which I didn't complete, but still the knowledge is there. I, I'm, I'm really interested in just starting to grow food and make my your own little uh, human resources reactor to 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 yeah to to provide and to to. Um, to help grow in a community. Um, Sorry, help grow what? Uh, and, and, yeah, an, an integrated, organized system of being independent. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay, give me a sense. Give me a, you know, you may have heard this sort of elevator pitch, right? It's the idea that you have like 30 seconds to describe your business. Yeah. 
Okay, so I'm 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 really trying. At, um, this is all new for me. This is an, a particularly new idea. But think of an old uh, of an old uh, apartment block or an uh, office building, like a big building, and just on every floor, the bottom floor, you make a shop. Uh, you sell food. You sell you sell uh, pots and and uh, fertilizer for uh, the plants you need to grow the food. We sell um, the pumps and the electronics and all the things you need uh, for the produce. We sell for you to do that yourself. For you to set up your own uh, little farm. Um, also, in in the, the second floor, you can have an animal shop third floor you can have aquaponics farms so you can farm fish you can farm uh, all kinds of produce uh, the next floor you can have uh, a server room which uh, you can uh, maintain the web shop you can ma maintain administration and uh, uh, you can can develop your own software platform uh, you can have above that an atelier uh, for okay for so, so this, but, sorry these are all things that you're offering to people but why should they invest? What is the average cost per person, and why should they invest? Uh, because it's um, a community project, so you're you're uh, no, 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 no. Sorry, not, people not people don't make decisions. Sorry, I'm going to be annoying investor guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Community project is not why people do things, right? So you know, let's say it's going to cost me five thousand dollars to buy into your system. Why should I do it? Because you'll end up uh, independent of me, of the system, of you'll you'll be able to do it yourself. You uh, see, but but independent. What does that mean? Um, you mean I'll be able to grow my own food? Why would I want to do that? Well, if you don't want to do that, you can come to our store and you can buy our uh, naturally grown organic food. But if you want is to, it going to be, uh, food, is it going to be cheaper? Uh, the quality is going to be very good. And so it's no, going to be more expensive, uh, but the quality is going to be better. Yeah, but there's no logistics uh, required because it's all in in the building. So there's a uh, a lot of cost uh, to be cut in in the process of just making a really efficient building that can uh, just be uh, yeah, like a reactor of of human okay, resources. Okay, so so sorry, activity, you, ha uh, you have to you, listen. Listen, sorry. If the first thing about entrepreneurship, in my opinion is that mm -hmm. adjectives don't count, right? I'm sorry. Better, nicer. I'm no, listen, no, you got to this – is, this is the part where you listen, okay? Because like, you yeah, asked yeah, me for yeah, the part, yeah. right? So this is the part where you listen. So if you, you, you have to start to narrow down what it is that you're selling and how it's different from what everyone else is selling. And then you have to figure out what the market size is. So what's the market for organic produce or uh, you know, self-sufficiency or as, as a goal or whatever in, in Holland or w in your <clears throat> neighborhood, right? It's, so it's, okay, well, I'm, I'm listening. No, go ahead. It's, it's growing. I think it's, it's more... Okay, uh, growing, growing is an adjective. So this doesn't count, right? You need <laughs> numbers, right? So the market size is you know, 25 million euros um, a year, or that's the mm -hmm. current market size. It's been growing by this amount over the past five years. So in five years, it's going to be 50 million, and so on. Right. So you first of all, you have to. How many people are even going to be willing, historically, to part money for what it is that you're you're doing? And then you have to provide a value proposition. 
right? Which is people yeah. should choose you because. So, like way back in the day, we sold uh, my my brother and I when we started a company, we sold software that helped people audit environmental issues on their land, right? Now, companies that used our software offered a forty percent discount on these environmental audits, which ran like twenty five hundred or three thousand dollars or whatever. So they offered a forty percent discount if they bought the software. So we could show, you know, if you buy our software, by the time you've done five or ten audits. You've saved all the money of buying our software, and after that, it's all profit. Yeah. And and we knew my brother was in the industry. We knew the size. Anyway, it doesn't matter, right? So so the point is that that you have to figure out the size of the market. You have to figure out what it is you're bringing to bear on the market. Why people should choose you. What's your differentiation? What's your value proposition, and so on. And uh, and then that that's to even think about starting a business in a particular area. Yeah. And then of course, what you need to do is you need to figure out how much money you need. Um, you know, cash flow is key. Cash flow is everything in business because you know you Absolutely. could be making a million dollars six weeks from now, but if you've got no money to live on for six weeks and you can't make it, it doesn't matter, right? So, yeah. figure out how much money you need to start, uh, and then if you need other people's skills to help you start, who you're going to work with, all, all that kind of. These are all very boring, mundane, uh, practical uh-huh. uh, things to do. Um, so now that's one way of doing it. Uh, it's a real challenge, right? And you might want to take a little course on business or startups or whatever. I'm sure that would be very helpful. Of course. Now, the other thing you can do, because uh, I didn't do all of that when I was starting mm-hmm. FDR. I did all of that before, but I didn't do that when I was starting FDR. So what I did when I started FDR was I had another job, and this was my hobby. And I tried to grow my hobby into something that could be more than a hobby. Uh, yep. So by the time, I think in, in 07, or I can't remember, 07, I think it was, that I quit my career to work on this full-time, I had some data about whether I could make it more than a hobby because I had some donations. I could look at the trends. I could figure out how many people. I say, okay, well, let's say there are this many libertarians in the world. Let's say you know there are this many people who'd also be interested in the other aspects of philosophy I bring to bear. Let's say that 5% of those people donate. Let's say that the average donation is X amount of dollars. Like I could do a spreadsheet and somewhere I've still got it where I say, okay, well, uh, these are my costs going to be my server costs, my hardware costs, and so on. Here's the tax advantages I'll have by switching from being a career uh, software guy to an entrepreneur working out of the home, blah, 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 right? So, you know, you could either do all of that work ahead of time or you can start it as a hobby if that's at all possible and get some numbers which you can then work to uh, to, to project how the business is going to grow in the future. Uh, those are the only two things that I've ever done. There may be some other way of doing it, but that would be – uh, that would be my suggestion. Also, you might want to visit a website called The Voluntary Life. Um, Mike, if you can just okay. double check uh, the uh, the website. Uh, it's a friend of mine uh, who's, uh, who's been a successful entrepreneur, uh, very successful. I think he's, he's writing a book at the, about entrepreneurship at the moment that's, that's worth looking at, worth reading. But uh, he runs a blog, and I don't know if they still do calls about entrepreneurship. Uh, but those kinds of things, you know, you just got to start talking to entrepreneurs yeah. uh, and sharing ideas, sharing experiences. You know, obviously, be mostly listening to begin with. But that would be th- those would be sort of my my suggestions. Yeah, thanks. And that's thevoluntarylife.com for those that are interested. Thevoluntarylife.com. The and uh, I would, uh, uh, I would, yeah, just just start to get into the conversation, and I think that would be great. Yeah, I will. I will. I'll uh, investigate. It's it's. It started as a hobby, so that's that's uh, very true. And I'm still looking for an alternative job to, to, yeah, to make sure that this dream can come true in in some way. Because, uh, and I'm still looking for. All right. Well, listen. Best of luck with it. I I hope it works out for you. you. And. Uh, please uh, post on the Freedom Radio message board. This is a good resource. I say, I say this to people all the time, but. Um, 
uh, I would, uh, you know, you free domain radio message board. A lot of really smart and great people uh, who are looking yep. you know, meet up with people, get get a community, find people in your neighborhood. Yeah, I, I, I just got a car, so so my life is really changing at the moment, and uh, I, I think the, there will be a, a lot of good things uh, ahead. Okay, good. Well, listen, best of luck to you, and uh, I'm, I, I'm you. very sorry for this Sergeant Major self-improvement scenario that you had as a child. That's just uh, just wretched. I, I'm so sorry yeah, about that. Yeah, it was uh, a lot to deal with, and, and the fact that now they're gone, it's like I don't, I didn't have any closure or something, so that's, yeah, I'm a bit I'm, weird. I'm sorry about that, too, but again, I'm sure your therapist will help with that. You don't yeah. need... You don't need people to be alive to get closure. You just have to – in fact, you know, if they're dead, you know, it, it, closure could be easier to get because at least there's no yeah. hope for change, right? I mean, it's not like they're going to yeah. come back to life and be better parents. So um, you can get closure even more quickly if they're dead, which is a, a tragic but an unfortunate con- – for- uh, tragic but the, one of the few fortunate consequences that can come out of that kind of situation. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, thank you very much, and uh, keep keep us keep me posted if you can, and and um, I will. use I will. the messages. Use use the message board if you can to see if you can find people close to you, or at least people you can chat with about I've, entrepreneurship. I've heard ab- about uh, a group in in Holland, so I, I will certainly check it out. Do it. Maybe they're in Christiana. Anyway, thanks. Thanks so much. Uh, do Do we have another caller, Jay? Uh, sorry, Mike. You white people will look the same. <laughs> Uh, we actually have a couple callers on the line, depending on how far in overtime you want to go. But uh, the next person up would be Robert. It's the closest I get to <laughs> athleticism these days. Um, all right, so let's let's. Uh, sorry to, to keep it a little brief. I'm happy to uh, to go over if people are happy to stay. Um, I love you guys so much. You are the reason that I do it, and the reason I'm able to do it. So let's go. Can you hear me? Yes, go for it. All right. Well, uh, first. Um Quick thing on uh, the uh, response to the pollution thing. Um, man, you went into a lot of detail on that. Uh, it seems a little bit um, overborn. Um, my response to it is basically, yeah, uh, you can sue somebody for polluting. And uh, the judgment that you're going to get is basically something along the lines of, well, you're polluting all these other things, so um, your compensation is about uh, $2. And uh, so let's move on. <laughs> um, yeah, instead of, yeah, no, uh, I mean, the reason I went into such detail is I literally got thousands of responses of people saying, oh, you're saying that you have to accept pollution to live in society. Well, that's just like saying you have to accept taxation to live in society. And it's like, no, 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 it's not the same at all. So that's, sorry, I'm, you well, know, I'm I know them. I went into annoying detail, but trust me, the amount of responses I got was, was kind of annoying. But, but go on. Well, I'm with them on that. I mean, but the response is basically, sorry, yes, you, you have a... Expected? Yeah, but they have a claim for damages that are minimal that wait, are wait, 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 almost, almost wait, not exist. Are, are you saying that to accept – so you listen to the podcast and you st- you, yeah. are you saying that you accept the argument that pollution is the same as taxation? Um, pollution without compensation, if one demands compensation, is somewhat yes. Um, but No, it, why, should, why should pollution always involve compensation? Um, well, you are introducing an unwanted, uh, pro, you know, uh, unwanted, uh, I don't know, chemical air or whatever. No, no, gas no, why, sorry, into... why is pollution? Why is pollution unwanted always? Like, so for instance, let's uh, so when I, you know, let's say uh, I move into a new house and there's no driveway; it's just gravel, right? I, I get the driveway paved, and it's really smelly around my house for a few days. That is not unwanted pollution, right? Right, but but you don't you don't get to choose the argument. I'll I'll choose the argument. Um, uh, well, sorry, wait, wait. Why don't I get to choose? 
the argument? Because I'm the one that's making the claim, so I have to defend myself. I'm the one that that is making the proposition, so I, you know, I, I should be able to make the the. Uh... No, no, you can you can say I would prefer to use one of my own scenarios, but you, there's no rule that says I can't and you you must. But the the burden of proof is on me, right? No, I put a scenario so, forward, and you can say I would prefer to use one of my own scenarios, but you don't get to say to me, you don't get to use this. I mean, <laughs> of course, I can, okay. we're having a conversation. Yeah. I can say that the okay. moon is made of sorry, cheese. Sorry. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, just sorry. be nice um, about it, that's all I'm saying, but go yeah. ahead. If you want to use sorry. a scenario rather than mine, that's fine. All right, so um, I'm going to make the claim that, uh, well, I'm living in my own... Uh, perfectly happy hunky dory house and uh, land and doing my thing and um, you're going to put up a uh, a pig farm near me and um, well the air blows over my area and um, I've got uh, wafting sense of pig dung well it's certainly annoying that uh, I've got you know pig smells coming over my area but um, the fact is, is that I did not beforehand set up a uh, insurance agency that would uh, try to prevent that from happening to me, or um, I did not uh, um, try to make liens on land that uh, was near me to prevent that from happening. So um, the amount of of uh, claim that I have against it is is you know it is of some site of some sort but um the damages the claim of damages as far as like the net result is minimal that uh okay well i've got a slightly uncomfortable sense of smell all right so what um i am still driving on the roads that the new pig factory has uh put up or I, you know, each one of them has trades and costs. And so each one of us are making trades and costs. And so sure I can make a claim of loss, but uh, the claim of loss is, uh, is pretty much negligible. Well, and of course there are lots of other options, right? I mean, if, <clears throat> if somebody's putting a pig farm or whatever, you can get everyone to boycott him. Oh sure, absolutely. Right, and, um, and you it, don't talk to this guy. Uh, don't sell him groceries. He's putting in this stinky pig farm. I mean, you're not you're not the only person affected. There are probably, you know, hundreds or thousands of homeowners who are going to be upset. Oh, sure. And so you can all go and say, listen, you know, give me 150 bucks. You 2,000 people will buy up all this land. We'll have a wonderful place to take our kids. We'll build a park, uh, and you know, we won't uh, have this, uh, you know, this stinky smell. It's going to be much like this. Uh, or, or if the guy builds it. In the middle of the night, stealthy or whatever, then you can all go and say, um, you know, we're we're not going to pay our electricity bills if you deliver electricity exactly. to this guy. Or what? I mean, you can come up with six million different ways of dealing yeah. with it um, that that don't involve lo behold, the stage or, or even force. But go on. And lo and behold, guess what? The price system kicks into gear, and uh, what people consider a value is a level of pollution that they're willing to accept or adopt is represented by the price system. Um, by the price system regarding um, land use, by the price system regarding air use, all of the price system, you know, the price system will will automatically dictate what it is that people are willing to accept. And if you're one of the few that says, well, I want a higher standard, well, guess what? You're going to have to pay a little bit more to move into an area where those 
problems don't exist. You pay a yeah. premium for being in a in a non polluted environment, so to speak. So it's, yeah, and, um, and also you know you could have um, it, it, people don't want animal smells coming across their property. It's kind of gross, right? Um, and so yeah. what you can do, of course, as well, I think society as a whole would rather buy animal products that didn't inconvenience or stink up the lives of thousands of people and their children. And so there would you, there could be a third-party agency that verifies, you know, this, this animal product was produced without neighborhood horror, you know, <laughs> without stinking <laughs> up the playgrounds of children, yeah. you know? Non-stink-fest labels or something like that. And people would then just only buy from those farms that, that didn't stink up people's childhoods and schools and playgrounds and this and that and the other, right? And um, yes. so, so, you know, it could be – the logo could be a child fainting into a cow shit or something, right? So there's this – you know, lots of ways in which this could be, could be dealt with, but go ahead. So um, the point I was making is, is that basically you, you didn't use – the understanding that we have of um, people's desires in the price system as to how it will affect pollution. And instead, you basically said, well, it is this assumption that um, we get all these good things out of it. But that's your placing your value system upon the other thing. In, in, but we all know that the, va Sorry, the values of – You keep dropping these things in. You understand. It's kind of annoying. You keep dropping these bombs in and then – running away like you didn't do anything, you know, like, well, you, you're imposing your value system on others. But to continue, it's like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. You, 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 that's but, not fair, I mean, right? did you or did you How not How am say I imposing that, my that, value? That, if, if I say, let, let's go back to my example. You, so if, uh, if let me, let me I give can't, you an example of you're talking listen, let me finish. I, I can't pave my okay. driveway and then sue right. the driveway paving company for making a smell around my house, right? Obviously. Obviously, because I'm choosing that pollution to have the benefit of a paved driveway, right? Correct, but uh, if I'm the next door neighbor, and you're paving your driveway over there, now I've got all this asphalt smell that I didn't necessarily agree to. But that that's not that's not addressing the point. The point that uh, that that was well, made. Well, okay, that's assuming that the neighbor's driveway is not paved as well, right? Uh, sure. Let's assume it's not. Because no, if it is, then he's got no right to complain about driveway smell if he's already paved his own driveway, right? That would be let me impose my smell on you, but if you impose your smell on me, that's terrible, right? Um, but of course, it is a reasonable expectation that if you move into a house in the suburbs, it's a reasonable expectation that the majority of people are going to pave their driveways. Because if you drive around in the suburbs, the vast, I, which, I mean, you almost never see a driveway that's not paved, right? Look, I, I totally get that, and, and the thing—the only thing that I wanted to add to—I'll like, finish my point. You are in in a big hurry, um, so you can't move into a neighborhood and then be sh like where, where everyone's going to pave their driveway and then be shocked that people are paving their driveway, right? Totally concur. Okay, so this is uh, a pollution that everybody voluntarily chooses in in return for. And, and I would argue it's in return for less pollution, right? If you if you pave your driveway, you sure, track sure, less grit sure. and dirt and crap into your house, which means you have to vacuum less, which means you use less electricity, which means your house is – the air is cleaner. And right? So in, in general, it's less pollution to pave your driveway than it is to not pave your driveway. So you'll take a smell for a couple of days in return for the convenience and the lower electricity bills and blah, 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 blah. So this is what – this is all I'm saying is that people voluntarily yeah. choose – the lesser of pollution, but choosing the lesser of pollution still involves choosing pollution. And that, but that's not the same as, as choosing taxes. 
Uh, taxes is not something people choose. It's something that's violent. You can't, you can't opt out opt out of taxes. I I think that the thing that I, I really was was kind of frustrated is that you didn't specifically bring up the price the price system as far as like well, how prices determine. Since I've done that millions of times before, and that was yeah. more of a specific but, response to it. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, um, I mean, I I agree with you in a lot of ways, but uh, I I just wanted that like one more po- point, just like to just hammer it home. Like, look. You're going to be able to buy properties that exist in this world where you don't have any of this crap that you don't want. But, uh, you know, bringing in uh, Alfonso and his 16 brothers to to make your landscape the way it is instead of having a backhoe, well, it has its costs. Um, <laughs> you know, if you don't want to have any gas-burning vehicles in your area, well, then solar-powered uh Hovercrafts are going to be kind of expensive, so you're going to have to pay those costs. <laughs> well, yeah, um, and let's say you don't want any gas-powered vehicles in your area, then clearly you wouldn't want to go to a grocery store, right? And 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 clearly you would never want to call an ambulance, right? And clearly you wouldn't want people to visit you using cars, and clearly you wouldn't want any roads around you, right? And people can do that if they want. Of course, you you can. I assume well, you can uh, go by, and only... I don't know how you'd get there. I guess you'd walk uh, with all your stuff, <clears throat> and. I don't know. You wouldn't want any materials delivered to you. You wouldn't want any internet because internet is uh, supported by people driving roads to fix ISPs and all that kind of stuff. So, well, but um, anyway, but so, they could yeah. have that. They they could have that environment if they wanted only solar-powered hovercrafts without roads, <laughs> delivering all of the groceries and all of the internet and all of the other things, which is obviously ludicrous because it's so ex- incredibly expensive. But well, theoretically, no, but, yes, but even could. like. The, Unless the chain of of delivery systems was all solar powered hovercraft, and and no gasoline was used to get the gasoline or oil or whatever it is out of the ground, and, and no uh, machines were used to produce, like if you say I don't want machinery, then don't buy groceries because I mean it's all factory farming these days, right? That's why we, so many of us are not dead, right? So anyway, I'm going to move on to the next caller if you don't mind, unless there's anything else that you really wanted to. Thank you again for all of your insights and uh, thanks. All right, let's move on to the next. All right, Clay, you're up next. Go ahead. Hi. Hello. What's up? Um, so primarily, first of all, you probably don't going to have to excuse me if I or just like don't be um uh wait up for me because I stutter occasionally. So like I'm gonna. Occasionally, when I'm talking, say that. So if you could just wait up for, for me to finish what I'm saying. But um, oh, listen, no, no so, problem. If it's if it's any consolation, okay. um, Mike was up while I was recording my video about George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin, and uh, I realized I made a mistake in one of the slides. I think it took me eight takes to record a 45-second slide. I mean, it, it, was, wow. it, it was ridiculous. It was embarrassing. Anyway, so I, I get it. You know, I mean, uh, so um, mm-hmm. go, go ahead. Very nice video, by the way, on um, George Zimmerman. I'm not sure nice is the um, right word, but uh, it's one of these things. I'm sorry it had, very, had to be, yeah. sorry it had to be very, made, but um, I'm glad it seems to be useful yeah. for some people. Yeah, so some background. I'm working this Summer, not really working yet. It's more of um, it's like a volunteer service at this um, this Department of Commerce. Um, 
this HNCC, which deals with studying and regulating the fisheries on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. So, I mean, just right there, it's basically masochism for a libertarian anarchist. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, was, so, the, was um, the IRS not able to take you on for your libertarian fish? Yeah, I know. Every time you go in the morning, right, right. Yeah, I'm very interested in science, and um, that was the only semi-biological volunteer place. So, yeah. I mean, it was fell into it, really. But so I'm working there, and obviously it's science and government run, basically. So there's plenty of status and liberals, and it's um, it's you know, I'm listening to presentations of people who think that um, that port authorities are private institutions and things like that, and it's very frustrating at times. And I was basically curious on um, how you made the, the case for liberty to scientists, really. Yeah, I mean, it's tough, right? Because, I mean, science has a methodology that is voluntary. And at mm -hmm. the same time, like, science is fundamentally anarchy, but scientists are paid usually by the state. And so it's, it's, a, it's a real contradiction. And I have learned uh, from long and bitter experience that it is almost almost useless, almost always useless to argue against somebody's economic self-interest. Mm -hmm. Because you get all this yeah. ex post facto justifications for blah de blah de blah right? So people who are making money off the state funding of science, you know, it's just like, who cares? They're, they're easier people to talk with than people whose mm -hmm. who's income and prestige and Education and all that are you know come from validated, paid for, supported by the state, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, yeah. I just I don't I don't bother arguing against people's economic self interest. Mm -hmm. I like I don't go down to the unemployment office and mm -hmm. attempt to convince people <laughs> of anarchy and, and the evils of the welfare state. And, you know, yeah. I don't go to military industrial conferences and say the military industrial con like who cares? This is like like the people people just follow their economic interest and. Their philosophical justifications, their moral justifications, they just follow after them like a tail follows a kite. <laughs> I mean, they just they, they, like, why bother? I mean, what's driving them is the economic justifications. I mean, it's the global warming argument, right? There's billions of dollars being pumped into global warming, and that buys a lot of guys with pocket protectors. Uh, and, you know, because yeah. <laughs> that's the way it goes. And then they will talk all this shit because they want the money and blah, 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 blah. So, so I don't bother arguing against people's economic self-interest. Uh, it's, it's an insult to philosophy mm -hmm. because it's pretending that mm -hmm. somehow their ideas came first. And that's bullshit. People's economic interest almost always comes first and the ideas follow obediently behind them like a bunch of mutilated <laughs> little ducklings after an evil... Mm -hmm. Goose. So, ducklings, goose, mm -hmm. duck. Goslings, goose. Oh, yeah. Please assemble your own metaphor. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid this metaphor has been delivered to you in an IKEA box. Good luck. So, but if I were to talk oh. to a scientist who was actually interested in reason, then I would say, why don't you all submit your scientific uh, hypotheses or theories or findings to a government agency, which then will tell you whether it's true or false? They'd say, well, because that would be corrupting. Because the whole point mm -hmm. is this is a voluntary, peer-reviewed, blah 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 We all follow the same methodology, but there's no central authority which validates science. There is only 
an agreed upon methodology, right? Say, ah, yes. you're an anarchist, right? <laughs> no central authority, only an agreed upon methodology. And you can choose not to follow this methodology. You can say, my findings are validated by, you know, my tarot card reading and how my cat coughed up a hairball on a picture of Richard Dawkins this morning. Uh, in which case, fine, you're, you're doing something, but it sure ain't science, right? So, um, yeah. so I mean, I would just point out that, that science can't possibly work with a coercive authority at its center and say, ah, you see, well, neither can society fundamentally in the long run. <laughs> Uh, so, so that would be my approach. Okay. So, so for example, um, I come from a long uh, line of scientists, really. Um, my grandpa and dad are both scientists. And, is it, is um, it, sorry to interrupt you, is it completely morally wrong of me to ask you for a William Shatner imitation? Um, probably. Probably cold-hearted and mean. But uh, that's just what popped in my <laughs> mind. But please, go, go ahead. So you come from a long say. line of scientists. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I come from a long line of scientists. And for someone like my father to um, support, you know, the state funding of science and the state and by um, association violence against me, how do I deal with living with that? Because I'm like 17, I don't really have a choice to leave. So how do I live with that, really? Well, I mean, it's it's a majority position driven by economic interest. I mean, it, it's virtually impenetrable, right? I mean, the majority of people think, you know, science funding, certainly the majority of scientists and the majority of science advocates, what are they all, ah, funding, uh, increased science, R&D, the future of civilization, internet, give us money, you bastards. Right, I mean that's that's the way it works. And if your dad is is has economic self interest combined with a majority position, and what is considered to be a virtuous position, then mere reason is almost completely helpless in the face of that. And so, uh, I mean, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, so, so I shouldn't take it as a reflection as um, how he feels about me. Solely because it's his own self-interest. Well, I, you right? know, if I were in your situation, um, mm -hmm. I would avoid that knowledge mm -hmm. for the time okay. being, right? Because I mean, you're in an independent okay. position, right? Uh, and so, yeah. um, so look, you don't have to pursue the truth at all costs. You know, the truth is not a sword to be drawn, no matter what, right? Uh, sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. Now, if you wanted to, you could sit him down for an afternoon when you were going to be uninterrupted. You could put up a whiteboard and you could lead him through the whole argument about how by supporting science funding, he's supporting violence against you, in particular debt against you, right? I mean, mm -hmm. scientists ain't paid out of real money. Nobody in the government has paid out of real money. It's all paid out of debt and fiat and indebting and enslaving mm -hmm. your poor generation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you so you so, wouldn't run a wouldn't mm -hmm. run up a credit card in my name, right? I mean that would be immoral. Mm -hmm. And yet you're willing to take yeah. all this money, which doesn't exist, <laughs> throwing the debt mm -hmm. through inflation and and mm -hmm. treasury bonds and shit onto me, right? Now you could step all the way through that, right? And you could like be really rigorous and you could be really uh, focused and so on, right? And that's that's rolling some significant dice with your dad, right? Yeah. Now if you come up double sixes, woohoo, you know. Now, that doesn't mean mm. he's got to quit his job or anything. I, I don't care what people mm -hmm. do with the truth. I only care that they get the truth. 
You know, because people always mm -hmm. say, well, now that I know this, what do I do? I don't care. Two and two make four. Go be an engineer or go play with blocks or, you know, go get a suntan. <laughs> I don't, at least know that two and two make four. I, I really don't. I don't care particularly to what people do with knowledge. I just care that they have knowledge. Because if I care what people mm -hmm. do with knowledge, then I'm dictating results, not methodology. I only care about the methodology, right? So mm -hmm. he, he might then, I mean, and it's not that tough an argument, right? So then he'd say, wow, I, you know, I hadn't thought about it this way, but I can't find an argument against you. I don't know what I'm going to do, but, you know, thank you for bringing this, right? Because scientists are all, all about, you know, can you believe that, 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 uh, that the, the Pope yeah. tortured the aged Galileo? <laughs> yeah. You know, that, can you believe how mm -hmm. religious people react? to the truth, how they get upset and offended and, right, okay, when well, they, you know, bring anarchists to a scientist tell them, and see how quickly mm -hmm. they look like the Pope, right? <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, a human yeah. not peculiar mm -hmm. to religious people, for heaven's mm -hmm. sakes, right? Uh, I mean, scientists yeah, are religious mm -hmm. when it comes to the state, right? They're statheists, right? I mean, they, mm -hmm. they've yeah. taken their religious irrationality and stuffed it into a social collective called the state, and they will look mm -hmm. like religious fundamentalists when you bring rational arguments about voluntarism and the state to, to them. Uh, and that's hard for their self-esteem, right? Because they've looked down upon superstitious people their whole life. Uh, but, you know, 99 times out of 100, when you bring arguments to do with anarchism to um, a scientist or an atheist, I mean, and I've had this happen repeatedly, and you can see some pretty brutal and gruesome shows on my channel about all of this, where I debate mm -hmm. atheists about the state. And, you know, they short-circuit yeah, as surely as, uh, as all other fundamentalists do. I mean, so, you know, Christians say that atheists are fundamentalists. It's like, well, they are, for the most part. They're just fundamentalists about the state, not about atheism. Um, mm -hmm. You know, cr crazy, until you have a full personality workover, until you really pursue self-knowledge, you know, you're crazy. You switch on the light. It's like the cockroaches aren't gone. They've just gone where you can't see them, right? And so if you've got an area in yeah. your life where you've got a fair amount of rational clarity, it doesn't mean your crazy is gone. It just means it's gone where you can't see it, which means usually into the state, right? <laughs> ah, no gods. Excellent. Ah, look how <laughs> rational I am. It's like, you know, taxation <laughs> is the institution of force. What? Heathen! Heathen! Burn him! <laughs> I mean, get all kinds of medieval ideas. Social right? contract. Anyway, uh, so, uh, I, yeah. I personally, I mean, if you have this conversation and it goes well, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. If you have this conversation mm -hmm. and it goes badly, I just want to point out you're not it's in just... an independent position as yet. You can have the conversation or not. I can't. Nobody can tell you, and anybody who tells you is an idiot. Nobody can tell you whether you should or shouldn't have that conversation. But um, it's uh, it's pretty tough uh, because you know if, if I were if I were your dad, and I'm not saying this is what your dad would say, but if I was your dad and I wasn't feeling particularly integrity bound during that conversation. I'd say, so you believe that my income is, is immoral. Well, then you should stop taking it. And if you're not willing to act on that, I'm not saying you should, right? I understand this. I'm, I'm not saying, but if you're not willing to act on that, it's kind of hard to say to your dad, well, well, just work for a little longer because I need your income, but your income is immoral and you should stop taking it. I mean, do you understand? We're all bound up in this stupid app system. So uh, I personally would wait for some independence if you want. You, don't, you never have to have that conversation if you, if you don't want to. But if you do want to, you know, really make sure you, 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 you do, you know, slowly, gently, positively, patiently recognize that it might take him weeks or maybe even a few months to, to accept the truth. Um, but, you know, and make it funny, like point out he's reacting like a fundamentalist right? Uh, when he reacts to this information. But I would, I would wait for some independence uh, myself, but, but it's, it's obviously it's up to you. Thank you. Yeah. So You're welcome.
Um, that is basically all my questions. So uh, I'll leave you to the next caller. Thank you. Thanks. And listen, great talking, dude. It was uh, really well done. Good <laughs> Thank job. You. I listen, that's, that's hard Thank as you. hell to do, right? I mean, Practice. isn't this like a stutterer's <laughs> worst nightmare? Hey, would you like to be broadcast to hundreds of thousands of people uh, live? Oh, my given, God. Good for you, man. Good for you. Yeah. I mean, I try to participate in class and everything. So I'm used to, to like, um, being put on the stage as such. Yeah. No, so, great, great job. Well done. Thank well you done. Good. for having me. All right. Bye-bye. All right, Mohammed, you're up. Thank you. My brother, what's up? Uh, hi, how are you? I'm well, how are you doing? Do you hear me? Oh, thank you. Yes. I'm, 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 I'm fine, thank you. Uh, it's kind of like I don't believe I'm, I'm talking to you, <laughs> so I have a lot of fear <laughs> right now. You want me to say something <laughs> like usually... completely freaky so you imagine you're dreaming? I can certainly come up with that. <laughs> Look out, the pelican has retrieved my gonad from the other pelican, and now it's flying into the sun <laughs> south. Anyway, go on. <laughs> Okay, no, no, I know I'm not dreaming, but I uh, kind of have a lot of fear. So I've been listening to your podcast for some time. Um, I found your website through Alice Miller, uh, one of her emails. Somebody quoted your book, and uh, I found like she really liked it And since I trust her. So I went to your website. So uh, the past two years have been very, very difficult uh, for me. Um, actually, I live in Montreal, Canada. I'm French-speaking, uh, so sometimes my English doesn't Well, Muhammad, really... of course, yeah, naturally. Yeah, I come from um, uh, um, an old uh, colony of France, North Africa. Uh, anyway, so I, um, I, I yeah, so I um, immigrated to Canada some time ago, about thirteen years ago. Um, since after my brother died, which were, was um, my brother was very um, was very close to me, uh, unlike my other uh, members of my family. So. Um, when he died, I felt everything empty. There was nothing to stay uh, about. So I convinced my parents to pay my studies and everything. So I came. I'm sorry to, and I don't uh, want to, you know, it's obviously a painful subject. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about it. How, how did he die? He died with a um, car accident. So he uh, drank a lot. And he, we have a farm away from the capital. So he, uh, so he, he, Apparently, he has a mistress, so maybe he did, didn't work well with her. So he, while driving back to home, he smashed a tree, a huge like eucalyptus, eucalyptus tree that he moved that yeah. tree with a car. That means like he was running pretty much 180 kilometers an hour or something like that. Or Anyway, so... And was he, and I was feel he drunk like at the his, time? He was drunk, yeah. And he was ejected from the car. And um, it is so no extremely, extremely painful. Obviously, no. In that in that uh, in that area of the country, like people, they you know, in farms, the people like they don't really wear like taxi drivers. You know, they don't really wear seat belts and stuff like that. Right. Anyway, so um, um, it was extremely painful for me. I felt uh, I felt a lot of emptiness. I remember that day. Uh, obviously, my mom and my dad, nobody comforted me. I had to comfort them, and it gives you a little bit uh, a picture about my childhood because uh, kind of I was the caretaker for everyone, and nobody really could nobody really cared for my feelings. Okay, so let me, um, I don't know what to go from here. I actually sent you an email not long ago. I don't know if you got it. It's uh, to host at Free Domain Radio. Um, you still here? Yes, go ahead. Okay, thank you. Okay, so um, 
Okay, let me speak about a little bit of what my childhood. I don't want to really take a lot of time from you because you've been talking a lot and I get so tired. Um, so my childhood uh, was extremely empty, but I was very an affectionate boy, very very affectionate. Uh, my dad is alcoholic. Uh, um, my mom is extremely like codependent and very very. Wow, sorry, I really am trembling here. Um, my mom was very, very sadistic. Oh, gosh. Uh, yes, I, I've, I've really listened to a lot of podcasts, which really resonates a lot, a lot in my heart, a lot, because I know exactly what you're talking about. And, um, and my mom, which I cut up all uh, my relationship with her, I told her to not to call me again. She's apparently suicidal because she kind of, I was like her surrogate husband for many years, because my dad is kind of like a baby right now. He pisses on himself. He, you know, he's 80, 80 years old. So he's, I mean, they, you know, he's, he's a very old guy. And I don't really care because I really have done any affection towards my dad. Okay, that, that was obvious since my, since I was a teen, I really, I was always in fight with him and I never really complied, you know, uh, pretty much like all my family say, like, how, how dare you do that? I said, like, I, you know, I, I have to do that. With my mom, is, uh, I had a lot of fights with her when I was teen. I once, like, jumped from the stairs just to show her how much I'm in pain, and she told me I'm crazy, I'm crazy. That's kind of like, it, it gives you the, the, the big picture. I had a very, very interesting dream not long ago, and I really wanted to talk to you about it because you because you love dreams, and I love them too. It's kind of like sometimes I have nightmares which I really write down because they take talk a lot and some other times. So my dream was uh, it's a blue sky with a lot of lightning in a blue sky. I go out, I see it's, a, it's kind of like amazing. I, I take pictures of that and then I look out of the – there's a, a TV set. And uh, in the TV set, there's a dictator. You know, I come from a country where there's a dictator before. He was ousted in the Arabic Revolution. And uh, this dictator was talking to the crowd. And I'm like, see, and I said, oh, my God, this crowd, I don't belong to them. These are like all listening, but actually they are like sheeps. You know, they listen to crap. And I'm, I'm looking and I'm looking all the crowd as if like I'm seeing everyone. I'm seeing this dictatorship and I'm saying, oh, my God. And then after I'm, I'm in a supermarket and I'm like packing up things and taking things with me and I have to leave. There was two people, an old guy with a, and, and a woman which appeared to be, to be my cousin. I was crying, 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 crying and saying, listen, I have to leave because I see everybody's leaving. I'm happy for everybody who's leaving. Now it's time for me to leave. Because I've been reading a lot of Alice Miller's website with all the emails she sent. She, she answers the, uh, the readers. And it's kind of for me, like, I, 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 I'm happy for them that they got freedom, emotional freedom. They got finally away from that trauma. They resolved the trauma. They resolved their anger and everything. Ah, that was like about three weeks ago. And then the old pattern comes back. Do you need to ask me any questions, Stefan, or you want me to continue? Because no, I'm kind of like, I need. Okay, good. Thank you. Okay, so uh, uh, I'm a gay guy. I've been with, in a relationship with a guy for approximately about seven years. This person has a strong narcissistic uh, traits, uh, doesn't feel much, and very codependent person. And I felt like I have to save him. You know, all the, excuse me, I'm going to say it that way, all the bullshit. I have to save people. I have to make them good so they can love me. They can take care of me. 
actually, the, they don't need to take care of me. Just a smile, that would be fine. You, you understand how much, like, I really don't ask. Yeah, like, you, you, because you, to be in a relationship, it can't just be you. It has to be you plus salvation, right? That is right. It has yeah. to come. So, of course, I'm sorry like, about that. A, I mean, obviously, I can understand how that would. Uh, oh my God! It's, it's extremely painful. I have. A, I understand. I understand. When you say sorry, I really feel it because I am sorry for myself. I am really sorry for the child I was that has to go through all this. I honestly don't. I mean, I can tell you, like, with a, a lot of honesty, I really don't don't deserve all of this, mean because I was kind of like a flower in a sorry, in a garden. I don't deserve having been treated as a child like uh, as a sorry I, I don't deserve having been treated that way as a child i was really extremely oh, no, beaten no. by my mom and uh, i've been always doing things that they really go against the her will because I, i'm in therapy and uh, there was one day i told my therapist like one day i was like about like 12 and uh, my dad and my mom didn't really understand anything i closed my i went to my room closed the door and i had like a huge mirror you know standing on the wall, you know, there's no frame, there's nothing, just like a piece of glass, mirror, and standing on the wall. I take that piece of glass and I will smash it. I've, obviously, I close the door with the key and I would smash it. I would smash it to pieces and they were going crazy. They were like, open the door, open the door, open the door, you're hurting yourself, open the door. And then um, my psychologist told me, well, if you didn't do that, you maybe, you, you, you um, kind of like you would have gone crazy if you didn't do that. I said, yes. I said, yes. I would go. Yeah, I would have gone crazy. That I, I, you know, I don't disagree. Obviously, I'm not competent to disagree with your psychologist's interpretation. But there's something else that struck me as well, uh, which is go that ahead. you know, if we have parents who hurt us, there's part of us that thinks, well, if my parents really understand that they're hurting me, then of course they'll stop. Hmm. Right. I if if I if I show my distress to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm then they'll stop. Once they get that they're hurting me, then of course they'll yeah. stop. And this is why, you know, this is why I think people, you know, they act out because they really want to communicate to their parents that they're being hurt. They, they drink, smoke, get drugs, tattoos, promiscuity, you, you know, crime, yeah. well, you name it, right? They're acting mm -hmm. out their pain in the hopes that somebody will see and say, oh my God, I didn't realize I was hurting you that much. I have to stop. Yeah, well, that didn't happen, by the way. No, and the tragedy is that we assume that they don't want to hurt us. That, I mean, that's a great tragedy, and I understand why kids assume that. But mm -hmm. you, you describe your mom as a sadist, and you know there are people who, they've done studies, right? They show them intentional cruelty, and they're, they're happy, joy, joy, pleasure, endo pleasure, endorphin centers light up, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it gives them pleasure to see pain. So the idea is to say, well, I'm going to break this mirror to show my parents how much I'm suffering. I'm going to get tattoos to show my parents how much I'm suffering. It's like you're feeding them. You're not changing them. You're reinforcing them. Something. them. Is yeah. it like something like, that I would You know, like if, if you I yell mean, when – it's like yelling when a torturer inflicts pain on you in the hopes that he's going to stop inflicting pain on you. It's like, no, he's a torturer. That's his job. He wants to inflict pain on you. And when you yell, you're actually giving him happiness and satisfaction. Okay. No, I mean, I understand. I thought also about like maybe because my mom is kind of like um, she's cold. She's very, very cold and she's very affectionate at the same time. She's, a, by the way, <clears throat> maybe it's something really very important to tell you that she is a school teacher. And uh, I don't know why it is important because I, I, I don't know. I've seen well, so many emails from people. Too, right? 
Excuse me? Sorry? Well, because, you know, hundreds or thousands of kids have passed through a classroom as well, right? She's an infectious agent. Yeah. Crazy, right? Well she, is, well, she is. But you know what? It's amazing. She gives them what she never gave me. And she comes home from school. I would want to talk to her. She tells me, no, my head is like huge now. Like I have a big headache. I can't talk to you. And I see her because she always put me in the same school. But she never was my teacher. So she, but I was in the same school. And I see her like going with, you know, talking to these kids and everything. For, for me, I felt like always, I'm, I was always happy for them. You know, I was happy for them. Wow, she gives them a lot. As if I take the joy from them, but not from her taking care of me. But I have an issue right now, which um, I thought maybe it is important for me to, to talk about. So I've been like in my therapy, I was feeling a lot of pain, feeling a lot of body pain, emotional pain, a lot of sadness, a lot of fear, panic attacks. Uh, but also what happens is I'm going to talk about a subject that I rarely heard or maybe like maybe never did a podcast for on this is idealization. Uh, you still here, Steph? Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, I just missed that last part. <laughs> it it fuzzed out for a second. If you could repeat. Yes, I can repeat that. No problem. So I want to talk about idealization. You know when mm. you I- idealize somebody to not to feel the pain? <clears throat> that, that, that kind of, uh, this mechanism helped me. Um, I, I read the, the drama of the gifted child, but there's a lot of info about this. But I really, uh, I really respect a lot your, um, the path you took for, in your therapy. You always say, well, I'm not a specialist, I'm not this, but you have the experience. And that's probably why I love your podcast, because you have the experience of this. You experienced it. So, I mean, I don't care about somebody who's a psychologist. He has like, I don't know, like diplomas and things like, uh, you know, on the wall. I really don't care. I care about the experience, you know. And uh, in, in my experience right now is the more I go into the pain, sometimes I have to idealize my ex. So I have a real problem right now with, uh, not with my ex because he's a symptom. But no, no, with, okay. Uh, this, this, i got to stop you at the beginning because I think you're, you're ahead, formulating it incorrectly. Idealization okay. is not something that we push out. It is something that is pulled out by the needs of others. You said that your ex had narcissistic tendencies. Yes. Right. Now, people who have narcissistic tendencies or who are, in fact, narcissists, they demand idealization from those around them. And if that idealization is not provided, then they punish, right? Which is why they're immune to criticism, why they react oh, to yeah. criticism, particularly legitimate criticism with, with infantile rage, right? And punishment. So you didn't sort of wake up one day and say, hey, I think I'm just going to idealize this person. Idealization was an emotionally abused, enforced demand to be in the relationship. You had to idealize. And any any, um, pullback from idealization, any questioning, any criticism would be met with childish and petulant uh, anger and punishment. Am am I anywhere close? Uh, Yes, I understand you. What, what you say. And I want to kind of a little bit relate to the experience because I experience these things inside my soul, inside my mind. So I experience them. And whenever I think about him, uh, what, it, what happens is I just see dark. I see like a hospital. I see like I'm going to be in a mental institution. So it's kind of like, kind of, 
it's really very negative. So I have to pull out myself from that and there. And uh, whenever I don't speak to him or sometimes he ignores me, he doesn't really give me any call. And obviously I want to really like, I'm distancing myself and I'm really, really like physically distancing. So maybe we talk once a week, like sometimes with a message or something like that. But whenever uh, sorry, I don't you, receive... You guys, I'm sorry, sorry to miss this obvious thing if you said it. Are you broken up? Yes. Okay. Well, so why are you still um, in conversation? Yeah. Oh, you're broken up, right? I mean, if you're broken it up, it's like you quit a job. I mean, you quit a job. You don't just go back and hang out, right? It's very painful what you're asking. Extremely, extremely painful. I, I get it. Because, no, I, I'm not saying it's not. Oh, my I'm God. Just, I mean, that's know, a lot of pain. And, and, you know, people have different ideas about this, and I don't claim to have any monopoly on the right or truth thing, but, mm-hmm. you know, if you break up, you break up. This sort of hanging out together, it just prevents you from moving oh. on, doesn't it? Of course. It's kind of like keeping the illusion of maybe one day I'm going to be accepted. But uh, yesterday I was listening to a podcast, which is very, very important podcast for me, which called Don't Take Out Your Childhood on Others or something like that. I don't know if you remember you did that. I think it's an old podcast. And it's yeah. extremely, extremely uh, important to me, that podcast, because it shows how much my self-esteem, uh, it shows a lot about my self-esteem. It shows a lot about uh, me being unworthy. Feeling defective, feeling unworthy, and no, yeah. Look, I mean, I get all of that, and I don't think you need any help to look at the low self-esteem elements that came out of your childhood. But I would argue that Mm -hmm. to idealize a narcissist comes out of hatred, not out of low self-esteem. If you idealize a narcissist, you're handing drugs to an addict, right? You you understand that's an incredibly destructive thing to do to someone. Someone who's a narcissist, if you if you idealize them, which is feeding their narcissism. Um, I mean, you are giving them a destructive drug, which is to keep reality away from a narcissist is incredibly destructive, right? This wasn't love, right? This was, you, you, you idealize a narcissist out of hatred and contempt, not, not out of love, right? Yeah, it's not love. It's not love. No, no, no. I know that. No, I'm not like in the illusion of love. Oh, I love him so much, so I have to go back to him. No, I, no but I, you were talking about the insecurity that. that drove it, and I would argue that it's unconscious hatred that would drive feeding a narcissist with idealization. Yeah, but do you mean like hatred towards this guy or to, hatred towards his mom? No, fundamentally it would be hatred towards a... your mom, right? Because, because you would right. be forced oh, yeah. to lie yeah. to your mother continuously, right? Being around a narcissist yeah. that you can't escape, which is, you know, I, I don't, would you say that your mother, I assume sadism comes with narcissism. Uh, again, I'm no expert, but would you say that your mother also My had... kind of like borderline and narcissistic, you know, she needs like, yeah, she needs whole, a lot of attention it's, it's the whole mess. Yeah, exactly. My dad yeah, she is needs a lot of, of like, propping up. So when you're around people who are deluded, they yeah. will punish you for the truth, right? So children, we all have an instinctive yeah. desire for truth and honesty and self-expression and so on, right? And so mm-hmm. you are punished for being honest around somebody who's narcissistic or deluded or vain or – I mean you name it, right? Anybody who's addicted to any kind of delusion will punish you. Yeah. And, we, we, and yet at the same time, they will demand truth from you. And they will punish you for obvious dishonesty. So you have to be dishonest about your dishonesty, right? So if you say to your mom, well, mom, I'm now going to praise you because I'm frightened of you attacking me if I don't. In other words, if you're honest about your dishonesty, you get attacked too, right? Well, because the feeling is the fear of death, by the way. The feeling that drives all this is the fear of Sorry, death, which? neglect. I said like the, all the feeling that driving all this is feeling of death. It's like I'm sorry, of, which drives all what? Who are you talking about? I'm talking about all this feeling of uh, being neglected, being abandoned, uh, 
you know, going after a narcissistic person, you know, it's, it's kind of like, are you I talking, have a sorry, are you talking about the victim of the narcissist or the narcissist? I'm talking about me. I'm talking about so myself. So the victim of the if narcissist I am, is driven. Yeah, of course. I mean, if, if you don't please a narcissistic mother, then you fear death because if the narcissistic mother turns on you or abandons you, you're dead, right? I mean, you're a baby, you're an infant, you're a toddler, you're a child, you're dependent. So, okay, yeah, I, so I how come that? that? But it's not really the fear of death, it's the fear of murder. The two and I, we all fear death because death happens to everyone, well, let, but murder okay, doesn't happen to everyone. Okay, let me talk about that. Okay, but well, if you don't mind, I want to talk about that. About, I want to talk about the anger, about the rage. I really want to talk sure. about that because it's kind of like I'm trying to get information from people who went through this process of living the, their strongest emotions and I pretty much don't get clear view as if like somebody do, withholding info. So uh, it's kind of like I feel a lot of anger and this in, in the body, I mean like I really trust my body, you know, kind of body um, expressions. So how I feel, I feel like I'm trembling inside and I feel like trembling very much all over my body, you know, and the tremble, people, they cannot see it, but I feel it inside. It's like, like very small, but trembles like very fast. And uh, I feel it in my jaws. I feel like in my my legs and everywhere, you know. And I feel like I have a lot of anger when that comes. I feel like a huge anger. And then the fear of that anger would come and cripples me. What I would do, I just go dissociate right away. I would do like a, anything. I would go smoke. I don't drink, but I would go smoke. Or I would do, or I would like sometimes hibernate inside my home. I don't go out because I'm afraid. So it's kind of, there is a guilt for feeling that feeling. Mm. Um, so I don't know if you get. I, I am sure you get. No, I, I, I completely but, uh, understand. I mean, I, I really, I yeah. get it. Um, so, if there's more you want to say about it, I'm certainly happy to hear. Well, you see, because I, I there is a, an answer of Miller. She said once to a reader, she said, "Writing may help to say everything to clear up your mind, but don't send the letter to your parents. You will not change them. Try to give as much as um, um, as much as you can affection to the child in yourself, the affection of the small child living in yourself who needs understanding and your love. This will help you to come out of your prison and to live your life without feeling guilty. You are not guilty. You have very good reasons to be outraged, but there is no doubt the rage will leave you once you fully when it, once fully understood in its reasons. I want to understand that. I want to understand. I don't know if you heard what I just said. I hope the microphone didn't. Uh, did you hear what I just read to you? I did. I did. Oh, and that I think this thing talks to me so much because I've been in pain in my therapy, and my therapist is helping me a lot to get close to my anger and my rage. And I feel like I kind of like I feel there's something that wants to click in my mind, wants like a crack in my brain, you know, something that is gonna give me the answer, gonna give me what is exactly. And I fear it so much. I have panic attacks. I don't take public transportation most of the time because I feel like people would see me and would see me angry because I have a lot of anger. And it's not like kind of like a, 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 my anger is not, sometimes it is a very uh, reactive anger, but no, so most of the time it comes from my belly. It comes like my belly would like harden and tighten so much that I feel like I'm, I'm you know, and my feet will tighten so much, I feel like I'm going to be disabled or something. So much, there's so much, something wants to be released. If you can give me something about this, something that is with the, this body the, that wants to express something and the fear of expressing something, do you think I'm going to die if I go and rage and feel this rage? And how to understand the reasons? Because she says, like, feel the rage and then it will only leave you when, when you understand the, re the reasons. 
which comes to the yeah. podcast I, I I've heard last night of of you when you said uh, it's like a cake. There's anger and there's a other layer. Which am I really that defective or something? And then there's the layer just beneath it, which is I am not defective. I'm a normal, and I'm okay human being. Did your boyfriend so know? Like, your boyfriend knew about your history, right? He knows. He read Miller, and uh, he yeah, read so a lot you, of so, books. So you, I just need short answers here. So your boyfriend he helped, knew yeah. that you had a narcissistic mom, right? He has the same too. He knows and he has the no, same No, no, I just need short answers here. Sorry to be annoying. Oh, right. okay, okay. Let, okay. So Sorry, he knew, ahead, just, this, is, this is not essay questions, right? So, so he okay. knew that you had a narcissistic mother. Well, yes. I mean, I don't know if he knows. Okay, no, no, that's all I need. Did he know, yeah, does he, he know himself that he has narcissistic tendencies? Yeah, he talks about it sometimes. Okay. So he knows that you are vulnerable to exploitation by narcissists, but as a narcissist, he thought it would be great to exploit you. Yeah. Right. Isn't this what we call a fucking asshole? Yeah. I mean, am I, am I mistaken here? No, you're not mistaken, but... Uh, like, if I know a woman has a history of sexual abuse, and then I intimidate her into, getting, into giving me sex, am I not using my knowledge of her history... In order to more profitably exploit her? Well, Steph, you ha I have a lot of anger right now. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, what I mean, am I missing here? He knew you had a narcissistic exploitive mom. And as a narcissist, yeah. he thought, hey, fucking great. This guy, well, I, can, well. I can milk this guy's childhood to feed my own narcissism because I know his history. Why would he leave for so long sometimes? Like he would leave for so long. No, when I, when no, leaves, no, like no. Stop it. Stay with your feelings. Okay. Don't start wondering well, feeling, why he did feeling, shit that he did. Who cares about that? Okay, no, no, I, I'm saying, but it's actually coming from my feeling, this question, because I feel like I've no, been replaced. No, this is coming, I, you said that you some... avoid your feelings. This is what you're doing, is you're now trying to puzzle him out rather than stay with your own anger. When I, said, when I talked about exploiting a victim of sexual abuse, you felt anger, right? Well, I've been sexually abused, by the way, I'm, I, I don't deny that. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I didn't know that that was a factor as well. So I apologize for not knowing that. that. Uh, I didn't, right? So, okay. But you understand that somebody, right? So the anger you felt in that moment when I was talking about somebody who exploits their knowledge of somebody's history of sexual abuse to get sex, maybe that occurred as well. I don't know. Oh, uh, But you uh, felt listen, anger in that moment, right? Yeah, well, he takes a lot of my uh, the articles I read on the internet, Bradshaw, all the books I read and everything, and he takes them and he gives them to somebody he wants to go out with. So he would help people just to get, gain their trust. And I found that, that each time I give him something, he would give it to somebody else. He never uses it. So I told him to get out. I would try to, to help him kind of because kind of like I'm kind of separating myself right now. Why are you trying feel... to help this guy who exploited you and exploits others? Well, there's a lot of fear. Which you, you there is anger and fear. Of what? Yeah. Well, I don't, uh, really, Steph, I, I, honestly, like, I really need, I don't know what to tell you. Um, um, I, need, I need to fix a lot of stuff. I need to feel my feelings. No, you see, you, feelings you're becoming are, oh. very abstract, right? I'm, not, I'm okay. not trying to get you to get angry. I'm just pointing out that you had a moment of anger, and then the first thing you did was try and puzzle, oh, why does he leave for so long? And, well, I've got a lot of things I need to deal with, and it's all very abstract, right? And, and this is your – you're obviously very verbal, very intelligent and so on. So this would be one of your primary, I would guess, as an amateur, I would guess this is one of your primary emotional defenses. Is that when a feeling comes, you try to puzzle something out 
as a way of avoiding the feeling. I well, will give myself an intellectual challenge in order to avoid my feelings, right? I do. I do, I do that Let by me try and out other people. Let me try and talk about my own emotions in the abstract. Let me distance myself from myself using concepts rather than experience the primal ape I, animal and I violation. I, I do that. I have a very, very, I'm a very intelligent person, very talented, photographer, videographer, you name it. I have a lot of, a lot of qualities. You, you know you're me. doing it again right now, right? Excuse me? You're doing it again right now. Oh, You're describing oh, really? yourself to me in abstract terms okay. rather than have the experience of anger at having been exploited. Well, your mother exploits you, and then your, fa- yeah. your, your mother exploits you, your father exploits you, your boyfriend comes along and says, oh, great, this guy's had a really damaged childhood. I can exploit that too. He should have been there to help you. He should have been there to support you. He certainly shouldn't have been... No, he but he 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 goes away. Whenever I feel like uh, strong emotions, I I feel him like he has to go, and he goes. Of course, and he goes because strong emotions will reveal his nature. Yeah. Strong emotions are like you know garlic to a vampire. Yeah. They, well, they, actually, they you know what? Correctly and, identify and he, exploitation. He, yeah, he, it's, it's like my mom. I've been sick uh, a lot when I, in my childhood, and. Uh, uh, she would take care of me and stuff like that. So oh my whenever, God, whenever, dude, dude, do you do you want to talk abstract? Oh no, 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 no. Or do you no, want no, to actually get in touch with your feelings? My God, no, it's, Stephane, it's like actually, you understand that this is like trying to push two magnets together. Stephane, Stop talking so much that, about things that aren't emotional. No, I understand that, but I know that she took care of me because I was very weak. But whenever I took, I took, I take stand, she would crush me. I understand that. I'm not on her side at all. I don't want to talk to her. I don't want to deal with her anymore. And I, I hate her. I have a lot of anger. And uh, I know that. But I don't know what to tell you. Okay. Well, my suggestion would be that um, meditation, I think, would be very important. If I were to give you sort of my amateur RX, right? Uh, yeah. So meditation important because you have a very active top of the brain, neofrontal cortex, hyper abstract, right? This is your defense, right? Uh, you, you give yourself puzzles and you give yourself abstractions in order to avoid feeling. That would be my guess, right? Now, my guess also is that when you go into abstract mode, your physicality becomes quite tense. Your neck gets tense, your shoulders get tense, and after you've been yes. defensive like this for a while, you probably have cramps. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Okay, you get headaches, you get your neck gets, I do. Uh, you know. Whatever. So get massages. Um, aromatherapy is really good. Do yoga, meditation, anything to physically relax the body. Now, when you feel anger, your natural response because of the trauma, my guess, would be to physically tense up. Well, don't do that. What you want to do, get relaxation tapes and so on. And when you start to feel angry, go lie down on the couch. Put, you know, you can get the eye patches that people wear uh, on airplanes, whatever. Put eye patches on. And work to physically relax your body. Relax your jaw, relax your neck, relax your back, relax your, relax your thighs. Don't focus on the emotions because when you start to focus on the emotions, you bounce off them and go into interstellar abstraction mode. Focus okay. not on the emotions. Focus on keeping your body physically relaxed as much as you can. So be in a position where you need no strength. Don't sit up. Don't walk. Just lie down and don't focus on the emotion. Just focus on physically relaxing your body. And that will tell your emotions that it's safe to come out. Because when your body tenses up, it in, invokes the fight-or-flight mechanism, which suppresses deep emotion. 
So that would be my... When the emotion come out, when I am, when I am like very... Don't worry about the emotion. I said, don't focus on the emotion. <laughs> you must listen. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. Don't focus on the emotion. If you try and chase the emotion, you'll end up analyzing and abstracting and it will not come out. You need to physically okay. relax your body, which tells your body that you're in a safe place for emotions to come out. Mm-hmm. And then the emotions will come out. Now, the, mo- the moment the emotions and- start to come out, you're going to start to tense up. And then the emotions will yes. go away. So you only focus on relaxing the body. Don't focus on the emotions. Only focus on whatever body work you can do to relax. This is why, you know, yoga, lots of stretching, um, maybe even Pilates. I've done that as well. Um, uh, aromatherapy or deep massage or whatever it is. I mean, I used to do an hour and a half of yoga on a Sunday and then have a two-hour aromatherapy massage. And then I was ready to deal with some anger, <laughs> right? But for, for, it's only focus on what you can control, which is the relaxation of your body. Don't focus on the emotions, which you can't. That would be my suggestion. And uh, my last question, actually, or my last thing, um, it's uh, about work. I work from home, and sometimes I have I'm a sorry. lot of procrastination. I'm so sorry. I just, I can't. I have to be responsible. I think we, uh, Mike, Mike, do we have one more caller? Nope, we're, um, Muhammad's the last oh, caller. Okay. Um, okay, let's, um, I'm going to have to keep it brief, though, because I'm pretty hungry. Yeah, no problem. Uh, no problem. Uh, go ahead. Um, uh, okay, my other question uh, is my, um, I, I work from home, so I have, I'm um, self-employed, and sometimes I have a lot of procrastination. Uh, I dissociate very quickly, and uh, I, I, I can't, some, sometimes I can't do much, so I cannot, like, you know, give the projects back to the clients and stuff like that. So I, and I would feel like um, a lot of self-attack. And uh, so, so it's kind of like I said to myself, oh, there's a big emotion to be felt right now. That's probably why that I, I, I'm procrastinating, you know? So it's kind of like I analyze a lot and I kind of intellectualize a lot my emotions. So am I answering my question, by the way? I'm not sure what the question is. Well, the question... Um, how to get out of procrastination when I'm in the middle of all this turmoil with my history, with my, with my therapy, with my readings and stuff like that. How to get myself to work, how to, get public, to go into public transportation, to go into the public without having anxiety and panic attacks. Uh, how to, what is the best way in a way to, to get to work on the therapy but also have a normal life. To feel like yeah. a lot of big I mean, emotions. No, I, I get Very it. Important. I get it. It's like saying, how do I have a normal weekend when I have to move? Well, you can't. I mean, if you're on digging up childhood and ending pathology and ending codependency and not supporting narcissists with passive-aggressive idealization and so on, and that's a huge project, right? Yes. That's a huge project. And I'm telling you, <laughs> it's going to save you years off your life. I mean, oh, I don't yeah, just mean like you'll live yeah. longer. You mean you probably will. But you just had a seven-year relationship. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, how many tens of thousands of hours did you spend in that relationship, which was basically added up to resentment, right? Oh, yeah. A lot of I'm not like, saying uh, it was uh, all bad or whatever, oh. but... You know, yeah, it obesity, because I self-attack. I would like attack myself. The anger is towards me. I, I, I direct my anger yeah, towards Yeah, so myself. lots of lots of negative experiences. And you sure as hell didn't fix your boyfriend, right? Oh, no. And he will not be fixed in 24 hours. Just the illusion that I'm going to fix him. No, I mean, me the, the, uh, the odds that he will be fixed is, you know, as close to nil as, right? 
it's like playing the. It's yeah. like saying I don't need to save for my retirement because I could. Yeah, win well, the lottery. because when he's he not might, here, but... I feel like okay. Yeah, but you know, but when he's not here, I feel like okay, he's fixed. He has a happy life. Me, I'm like this. This is and this is comes from my childhood because I have to discover this. Why do I idealize people when they go away from me? I feel like they left me because they have a joyful life right now. And uh, you know, sometimes like it gets into my brain so. Big but you already so told me the answer to that, which is that your mom was great with the other kids and would come home and be shitty with you, right? Yeah. It's the same pattern, right? This is the pattern you learned from your mom. But, but anyway, so yeah. Well, now like, that you work, like, let's say, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. About the question I asked you, how to make a like, how to go into therapy, how to go into heavy, heavy stuff, but at the no, same no, time, I, I'm answering keeping that question. my life. Let me, let me finish the answer before you interrupt me oh, again. Sorry. More actions. All right. Um, I'm sorry. If you spend six to 12 months of reduced labor at home, let's say you cut yourself down to part-time and you say, well, I can't do everything, right? Uh So let's say I accept a drop in my living standard or I go into debt or whatever it is and I take on Mm -hmm. half the work. Instead of working 10 hours a day, I work five or six hours a day. Why? Because I got a journal, because I got to fix things, because I got a you know therapy. I've got you know whatever. I got to analyze my dreams. I've got to read books. I got to listen to podcasts or whatever it is that you're doing to make yourself better. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a part time job, right? Oh my god! And nobody expects to have a full time job, take on a part time job, and have a normal life, right? Or it's not going to happen. Now, the stuff I'm saying to you is going to be even more freaking time-consuming. Oh, right, great. Now I've got to meditate. Oh, great. Now I've got to do yoga. Oh, great. Now I've got to do massage. Oh, great. Now I've got to physically learn how to relax. That's ah, even more time out of my schedule. Damn it. Right? Okay. Yeah. So the reality is what you're doing is you are spending a lot of time now on self-improvement so that you don't waste another seven years in an exploitive relationship. That's right. So if you spend six to 12 months now working part-time, Heavily, I mean, when I was doing my therapy, I was doing three hours a week and at least ten to twelve hours more of. Mm-hmm. That's what I do. Uh, I do two, two to two half an hour a week. God, I mean, it was it was a part time job. It is. It was like fifteen to twenty hours a week. Mm-hmm. My therapy journal, typed up, goes to like eight hundred pages. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So, it's an investment now. You're not going to have a normal life, but what you're doing is you're going to have a normal life. And you're going to have a life without wasting so much time on destructive relationships. So I would cut back on, if, if you find it overwhelming, which I can completely understand, cut back on your hours. Yeah. Cut back on your hours at work, take on fewer obligations, and recognize that this is a huge investment in your future where you can end up with a stable, happy, and loving relationship that hopefully can last your whole life long, where you have security, where you're not enabling, where you're not got all this screwed up shit that's going on, where you can genuinely respect and admire your lover and not have this endless photocopying of early trauma be called the future flags of your distant days. I mean, that's not what you want. You don't want to live your childhood over and over and over again. You don't want to be a slave to narcissists until they throw you in a six-foot hole in the ground and throw dirt in your face. You don't want that. I mean, you don't want, you don't want your mom to win that much, right? I mean, that's terrible. So you're changing your path. That's a lot of work. And if it means that, you know, you've got to buy a few less lattes every week because you're cutting back on your work hours, that's a great investment. But tell me what you're feeling. 
just like, I don't know. <laughs> it is, is when I was talking about your mom winning. Is that when it hit you? No, actually, I, I feel like kind of like I imagine myself having a great life. And it's kind of like tears, but there is like kind of happiness because I've been always a hopeful person. I almost like committed suicide about like um, maybe eight months ago and I ended up in a hospital. And since then, it changed me because I promised myself like to be always on my side and try my best to never, never do something like that. Never jeopardize my life, never give them reason, never like kill myself by proxy for them. Never like, you know, because they killed pretty much everything in me, you know. They killed a lot of stuff, and I'm trying like to to kind of like improve myself. So, so my kind of my crying is like I completely understand. It touches me what you said, and I completely understand what you what you say. At, maybe at the emotional level. So uh, good. Anyway, go on. I, I don't know what to say. It's just like sometimes it's over. This work is overwhelming. Sometimes I feel like I'm gonna die if I do this work and facing my childhood traumas and the truth and everything. And I know like I have to live with the truth. I have to see it, experience it. And I have to live with what, what I see. I have to. Yeah. And I would, the last piece of advice I'll give you is, yeah. and I appreciate your emotional vulnerability and openness. I, I really do. And I really respect um, what you're doing. I mean, this is, this is how we save the world. This is how we make the world a better place. Yes. This is how in the long yes. run we end uh, tyranny and superstition and hierarchy. I mean, this is this is the work that is necessary and massive, massive medals. Congratulations, flights of doves, uh, fireworks, and a twenty-one gun salute uh, for for what it is that you're doing. I mean, this is this is how the world crawls up the ladder to a higher place. Uh, good for you. Thank you. Thank you. But <clears throat> the other thing that I've noticed in our conversation, my friend, is that yep. you tend to blur all of your emotions as if they're just yours. And unfortunately, when you grow up with narcissists, the majority of your emotional life is dedicated to serving the needs of the narcissist. They're not your emotions. They're emotions, they're pretend emotions demanded by the narcissists in return like for, what, for survival. Like, like how to differentiate if it's my emotion or if it's somebody else's emotion. Right, like right. That. So, so um, this is something I've done a number of times. So... Um, do you have a do, podcast that I can paper listen to? down the middle on the left, emotions which served me, emotions which served others is on the right. Okay. So uh, on the left, I would say emotions which served me um, or, or states or, or whatever, things that served me. Well, one was honesty. Honesty served me. I liked to be honest. Oh. Okay. Honesty did not serve the narcissist. To serve the narcissist, I had to lie and I had to lie about lying. I had to pretend Something was true when it wasn't, and then I had to erase even the pretense. Right, so, right, so uh, uh, independence served me, and dependence served the narcissist. Happiness generally mm. served me. Happiness generally annoyed the narcissist. My happiness. Right? Courage served me. Courage brought attack from the narcissists. So courage served me, enslavement and obedience served the narcissist. Having my own needs was great for me. Having my own needs was bad for the narcissist. So only serving the narcissist's needs was great for the narcissist, but terrible for me. That's right. Love was something I wanted, but love was something that threatened the pseudo-bond with the narcissist because genuine love reveals the narcissism, right? 
Oh you yeah, said you were many times. Yeah. So affection. I'm a very affectionate person. Yeah, and my my excuse me, just very fast because my ex once I told him I really like have love for you. He told me no, it's uh, that I cannot accept. Um, I, I it turns me off. It was in the sexual. Uh, we were kind of in the sexual, trying to get sexual and stuff like that. And I don't know why I said I love you. It was like many months ago, and he said, uh, "Oh, that turns me off." And if well, I, I, I didn't I guess understand, we can at least give him points for honesty. <laughs> I mean, not a lot, but well, a few, he right? He, you yeah, know, well, that he's, in, he's pretty in, much telling you everything you need to know, right? Love is yeah, a sexual turn-off for of me. Stuff. Well, affection is a sexual turn-off for me. It's like, what kind of freaky-ass, cold, iceberg-hearted monster are you? Anyway. Yeah, he's very much afraid of my affection. Very, very much afraid. Oh, he doesn't take it. He doesn't want to take it. Take as it. an itwig, that would be great. Uh, and this gimp suit. Anyway, but uh, so, so just emotional experience, affection, to be affectionate with a narcissist generally provokes irritation on the part of a narcissist unless it's yes. particularly convenient for them at the moment or whatever right because affection yeah. creates implicit obligation and if there's one thing narcissists hate it's obligation right because obligation <laughs> yeah. is something they have to do that interferes with the momentary pleasure right the, with the pleasure of the moment mm-hmm. so yeah. so uh, but you put all of your feelings like they're just yours like like you didn't have to adapt to a narcissist's needs at your own expense, and that the, the feelings that were demanded by the narcissist are wrapped up in the genuine and authentic feelings that you had as a child, and I guarantee you the true were almost invariably in opposition. Right, so you say, uh, um, I'm codependent, or, or I idealize people, and I, I bugged you about this at the beginning, he says, no, don't idealize people. You were punished for not idealizing people in the past. Oh my. Yes, 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 yes. Right? It's like saying I'm locked in a cage 10 by 10. It's like I had a habit of walking in circles as a child. I don't know why. No, because your cage was 10 by 10. So you walked in small circle because there was a cage, right? And if you don't see yes. the cage, then you just say, well, I had this weird habit of walking in circles. I don't know what that was all about. Let's puzzle yes, it out. Yes, yes. And when I, when, I, when I was a you child, I always felt being happy by myself. I would go in front of the scene. Do you really like the moon? Do you think – I mean, no, you were in a cage. This, there's a very simple explanation for it, right? So don't confuse that which was inflicted upon you and that which was demanded upon you with threat of infinite punishment. Don't confuse all of the stuff you had to fake with who you really are. You're so right when you say that. You're so right. When you say maybe I've been punished for not idealizing because I always stood up to this bitch, excuse me, my mom. I always stood up to her. Always stood up. I always like oh, you don't tried have to, to destroy that. That's fine with me. Yeah. Yeah, I always stood up. I always, always, always stood up. And the only way that I really got myself in peace is being alone. I, 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 okay. I, I was born next to the... you're not yeah, telling me the truth. Alone. And I'm not saying you're lying to me. It is impossible okay. to stand up to a parent. Always. Oh, I, I mean, because it is up, not you know, an equal like, relationship. It is not an equal relationship. But, if you but had, I destroyed... let's say that... It, sorry to interrupt. Let's say that in some fantasy okay. world, it was possible for you to completely and totally stand up to and reject your mother's ideology or your mother's needs or your mother's craziness or whatever, your mother's narcissism. If that were true, there's no way you would ever have gotten involved in a seven-year relationship with a narcissist as an adult. How come I would destroy things that belong to her just to make her... Is that because uh, look, I'm not look saying you didn't fight with her. Of course you did. Mm. But like I was young. You I was like six or seven. I would destroy parents. her. No, you I can't, can't, of course, of course yeah, you destroyed things. I got angry at my mom. Absolutely. I yelled and screamed at her and so on. Oh, yeah. I yeah, get that. I well, actually, I she get destroyed that, but you can't that after win. I destroyed that. 
But you can't win with a parent because they have full legal and economic control over you. Yeah. You can fight, you can kick, you can scream, but you can't escape. And the imprinting occurs inevitably. Because if you fight crazy, it's not like you've escaped crazy, right? It's not like mm. you're free of crazy if you've got to go smash up someone's possessions who's crazy. So give yourself the respect of the vulnerability that you actually had, of the imprinting that you inevitably received that there was no way to avoid. Yeah, give yourself some points for fighting, but don't imagine you won. You can't win as a child. No, I didn't win. So I just, I you know, but if you think that you somehow won or you always stood up to her or you fought her off, or then that leaves you vulnerable to future exploitation because it means you can't see the areas in which you were imprinted that other people can see and exploit you for. Like, you know, you have this habit. If somebody demands idealization from you, you'll provide it because that's what you were trained and bullied to do as a child. And there was no way to avoid that. There was no way to not do that. So again, I don't want to go into all the details, but I would really – you have to separate your, your flesh from your scar tissue. You understand? Like if somebody stabs you in the side and you end up with a big-ass scar under your ribs, you say, well, these are my ribs. This is my side. This is my skin, and this is the scar. You can say it's my scar, I guess, right? But it's not a scar that you created. It's a scar that was inflicted upon you. It's because something alien was plunged into your body. The scar belongs to the person who injured you. It's the, like a brand. It's like when sometimes right? so, I want to throw – sometimes when I think about my mom, I want to throw up. It's just kind of this scar that I want to get out of my yeah, body. Yeah, because there was an infection, put it, right? And, and the, yeah, yeah. the narcissism and the demands and the, it distorted your personality to, to serve the needs of the narcissistic person. It's like an infection. I, I, I get that. I get that. But you have to differentiate your true self, which was, you know, grave danger to you. Being, being honest around narcissists is like, you know, man, painting a target on your forehead, right? I mean, it's like, come hit me here, yell at me here, scream at me here, abandon me here, destroy me here. You have to hide who you are around narcissists because they can't stand anything independent of yeah. their own needs. Anything which has needs independent of what they want in the moment. They will viciously attack and destroy anything which is inconvenient to them. Yes. And so really – and I, just as last point, I've got to get some lunch. But really work to differentiate who you are and who you were forced to comply with and what you became to, because you were forced to comply with. Okay. And that doesn't mean that the feelings that you have that you were forced to comply with are somehow outside your body or not part of yourself. I mean they are. But it's really important to distinguish those because otherwise what you'll end up doing is you'll mistake personal moral choices for survival techniques in times of crisis. And you'll say, well, I have this habit of idealizing narcissists. It's like, don't make that your habit. Oh, I understand. I, I get it even more now. It, it, these are adaptation demands to dangerous situations. This is not something you just have a habit of or decided to do or woke up one morning and said, this would be great. Right? It's this not is something I, have to, I should dig into it. That means when I feel like I idealize, do I, should I dig into it? That's what I had. Like, that's what you said. Like, maybe you can I, say, I, kind I have of... a habit of idealizing people which was inflicted upon me when I was younger. 
right? I was forced to idealize people on pain of death, rejection, terror, abuse, right? I was forced to idealize people. And therefore, when I'm around narcissists, I have a tendency to fall back into an abusive pattern that was inflicted upon me when I was a kid. Not just, well, I just have a habit of idealizing people. Yeah. Right. Anyway, so that's that's sort of my last suggestion. Really work to differentiate that which is true and honest and natural to you and that which was an adaptation to a dangerous environment. Okay. Because then you'll be able to see that dangerous environment and avoid it much more clearly as an adult going forward. And once you can trust yourself to see and avoid abusive situations going forward, then you get the Arkenstone. You get the true prize. You get love and security, passion, joy, happiness. It's like doing the hard work. If you're out of that hospital. Okay. Okay, I understand. All right. All right, thank you very much, Stefan. Very, very... Great work, Mohammed. It was a real pleasure chatting with you, (laughs) and congratulations on all the work that you're doing, and I'm incredibly sorry about all the circumstances that brought about the need for this work. Yes, yes. Lots of love, brother. All right? Take care. Lots of love. (laughs) Take care. And have yourself a wonderful week, everyone. Um, If you support the show, as you know, this is the kind of work that, that the show is doing. And I hope you get what a great listenership we have, how incredibly courageous, noble, honorable, and resolute people are in their pursuit of self-knowledge, in their desire to embrace virtue, to shun evil, to change cycles of abuse that have occurred for centuries in a particular gene pool. What a revolution we are participating in together as a community never been done before to my knowledge and my belief this is unique and thank you everybody who calls in and is incredibly honest Uh, and uh, I I really respect uh, and and take very seriously the trust that you put in me I hope that I equip myself with some degree of rigor and consistency and thank you everybody for your support if you want to help out the show fdrurl.com forward slash donate all gratefully accepted and have yourselves a wonderful week Thank you, James, for fixing the feed issues. Thank you, Mike, so much for your friendship, love, and support and for your technical competence in the Sunday show and for running the show, of course. I will talk to you soon.